The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. So one of the best things about um, this uh, Who's Number One thing is that I get to see you once a month. It's been, <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> I've been enjoying it, man. We've had some wonderful conversations, and I figured, why not get you in here? Let's put one of these down on recording. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, this, this idea, this concept is so fantastic to me to take elite gra- el- elite grapplers and pay them for matches and then f- stream it online and flow grappling is doing this and they're very successful a lo- yes. lot of jujitsu people are tuning into these things and and you know it's it's really become a hit um it, a true key in the development of any sport is some kind of uh, organization which showcases it uh, for mixed martial arts, it was the UFC. And grappling always struggled with uh, the idea of showcasing the skills of the athletes. Um, there were local shows. Uh, when when you and I started Jiu-Jitsu, there were crazy local shows where people would just informally come in and compete against each other. Um, but there was nothing that had any kind of overall vision or uh, sustained program over time. And that, I believe, is what flow grappling is trying to do here. They're trying to give something... Uh, a grappling version of what the UFC has done for mixed martial arts. And uh, uh, the athlete pay is improved dramatically over uh, earlier years, and athlete exposure is massively improved. So it, it's a very encouraging thing. And the production is excellent. Yes. It's yeah. really good. It's yeah. uh, great commentary. And it, great. It, it's something where you could take someone who didn't know much about grappling a friend of yours, invite them over and watch it together, and, and they'll be like, hey, that's an impressive sport. And like, as you say, the production looks like it's, it's a legitimate sport, as opposed to like going to the local high school on a Saturday and watching you compete and, um, yeah. in, in that fashion. Well, one of the things that's made the sport more palatable is the approach that your athletes take, and many other athletes are following suit, is that it's a very submission-based approach, instead of just trying to score points. Because I think there's been a problem with these rule sets where, I mean, even though Abu Dhabi's done an amazing job of showcasing elite grapplers, there's something weird about their score set systems. So the first, was it first five minutes, there's no sc- points that, scored? That's correct, yes. And then the next five minutes, you score points. So, so you get guys stalling out for five minutes. So you almost guarantee a boring five minutes unless you have some sort of Marcelo Garcia attacker who just ju- just dives on submissions and yes. goes after it right away, which is not the norm. The norm is points-based guys who are just trying to win. That's correct. Um, as a general rule, you know, athletes are smart and they want to win. So um, they will, as a general rule, always try to find the least risky way of attaining victory and doing the minimum amount of work in order to get to a, a win. Um, and yet... The, the spectators are demanding something else. They're demanding entertainment. And in the sport of jiu-jitsu, the most entertaining thing you can do is to push the action towards submission holds. And submissions function in grappling the same way a knockout punch does in boxing. And it's the most desired result. It's also the most impressive result. If you think, Joe, back to when you first started jiu-jitsu, what was its primary appeal? Well, I think for the overwhelming majority of practitioners of Judas, it was the idea of submission. I think that's the only appeal. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you could ever say anybody. I find it appealing to win on points. 
Yeah, or, it's ridiculous. or even worse on advantage. Yeah, you I, just wrestle if you want to do yeah. that. Yeah, it's, uh, um, when, when you look at, uh, at jiu-jitsu, what makes it remarkable is the idea that it's a form of grappling where the outcome is determined in a way which it, it's understandable to anyone. It's, it's surrender. You make someone surrender to you. Like, um, as impressive as uh, judo, wrestling are as sports, the mechanism by which they win, in judo's case, the ippon throw, they do have submissions in judo, but they're much less emphasized. Um, and in wrestling at pin, they're not as decisive. Like, you know, it's easy to imagine someone who got pinned with their shoulders on the mat for three seconds but came back to win the fight. That's not a difficult thing to conceive of. It's easy to conceive of someone who got thrown pretty hard and still kept fighting and won. But when you surrender, that that's you saying, I quit, it's over. And that's the most definitive form of victory possible in, in any uh, form of grappling. And that, I think, was the true appeal of jiu-jitsu. The further you get away from the idea that jiu-jitsu is about control leading to submission, the less interesting the sport becomes. And um, we must do as much as possible to push athletes towards that that, that form of, uh, that expression of jiu-jitsu. Don't just win by the minimum amount to get the job done, but go the extra distance and try to win by submission. Now, you just mentioned the name of Marcelo Garcia. He was one of a handful of athletes. You, you see um, Hodger, Gracie was another, who at a time when the rule set didn't demand it, went out of their way to go the extra distance and fight from beginning to end for submission. And what do you notice about those athletes? They're legends. They're legends. They're loved to a degree which all those other athletes, and don't forget, they both lost. Okay, they both had their losses. They weren't undefeatable. But they're legends because of the way they fought as much as for the victories themselves. Yeah, they represented true jiu-jitsu. They represented the ideal of control to submission. And... There's a sense in which athletes have to understand if you want to build a brand in jiu-jitsu, you can't just go with that minimalist approach of do enough to win, be happy with that. And you have to go into expressing the ideal of jiu-jitsu. Now, the natural response on the part of many organizers is to try and create rules which force athletes against their will to go the extra distance. That was the intention in ADCC, the Abu Dhabi um, uh, approach, they they took away points in the first five minutes so that athletes would be encouraged to go for submission holds. Now, some of them were, but as you correctly pointed out, most of them weren't. They actually used it not as a means of encouraging submission, but actually avoiding any form of contact and making for a very boring first five minutes in many cases. Um, so what I truly believe is that it's, there's never going to be a rule set which forces athletes towards submission. The way it's going to change is through culture. It's got to come, I believe, from coaches creating a culture where athletes strive for a higher ideal in jiu-jitsu, which is control to submission rather than minimum advantage or points to score a win and, and be happy. It's got to come from a training room culture rather than rules. A good athlete can always game the rules to get the minimum 
method of victory. There's always a way. Like just as a lawyer will find any interpretation of a of a law in order to get the result they seek, so too an athlete can find any interpretation of the rules to get to the minimal win. So it's not going to come from rules. They've tried in the past and it just hasn't worked. In fact, it's actually had some negative connotations, as as you pointed out. Um, so it's got to come from a, a training room culture, and that's what I try to do with my squad. When you see rule sets like EBI, where they put people in particular positions, like back mount or mm. spider web, arm bar uh, defense, what do you think about that approach, about going to a certain amount of time and then See, there's the pro and con is the pro is you're forced to you're you're in a real bad situation from the jump, either back mount or uh, armbar defense. The con is that you didn't really get there. You kind of got forced into that position, which is very odd for someone who has insane defense and they never get their back taken, and all of a sudden you 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 start out with hooks in, you know, arm across, and ready, go. And then you have to fight your way out of it. What do you feel about those? Um, it was a fascinating rule set. It's actually the rule set by which the squad originally made their name um, uh, long before their successes in ADCC. Um, unfortunately, it too runs into problems with athletes gaming the system. Um, there's a trend among many athletes now just to stall for the entire 10 minutes of regulation, knowing that, they've spent most of their training resources on the overtime and they can win in the overtime. So it creates the same sense in which the athletes won't engage. Um, I was always very proud of the fact that I had three athletes, uh, Gary Tonin did it twice actually, uh, Eddie Cummings and uh, Gordon Ryan, who achieved uh, a 100% success rate in regulation time. I believe they were the only athletes who ever achieved that. Um, in other words, they didn't see overtime as a desirable thing. They, they all considered overtime as kind of like, yeah, you, you failed. If you had to get to overtime, it was failure. Um, whereas many of the athletes now see overtime as the best strategy to win. Avoid contact for 10 minutes, then try to win in overtime. So unfortunately, even EBI runs into the same problem of athletes gaming the system. Um, and so I'll, I'll just repeat my point that at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what system you offer. P people will find a way to... to use the rules to their advantage, and that ultimately the solution lies not in rules, but in the training culture and the gyms that you come from. Ideally, um, in my opinion, uh, a no time limit submission match is the way to go. Yeah. That's the way you find out. Unfortunately, it's it's impractical as a yeah. TV event, but uh, I, I couldn't agree more. There's no more definitive result than a no time limit match. There's it's hard to argue with the result. I feel like it's 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 not good for TV, but we're not on TV. We're streaming. It's no different than a podcast, in my opinion. Like if someone, if I went to a television network and said, "I have this idea. I want to have these three-hour conversations." What kind of people? Well, one day I'm going to have a jujitsu coach, and the other day I'm going to have a scientist, and then and they get the fuck out of here. That's not going to work. That's true. But, but it will work if it's good. And I feel that with streaming and jujitsu, I feel like. Why would we, like, if you got Gordon Ryan and Cyborg to agree to a match, say Gordon's healthy again, why would you have a time limit on that? I want to see that play out. You're, you're talking to yes. someone who agrees with you. I here know I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it, I will try and play devil's advocate from the, uh, from the point of view of the producers of a show. They run multiple um, uh, matches per show. Good. And, do it all day. <laughs> 
Start um, start at five p.m. Yeah. Run that bitch till midnight. Um, Let's see what's up. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one in terms of like you know how are you gonna get the warm ups done. Like yeah, uh, I don't know. This match in front of me could be four hours long. Um, That's true. When do I begin my warm up for the, well, for the next match? I think the way you do it is you have time limits for the preliminary bouts, but then when you get to the big fights. When you get to the like, this I believe could be yeah. practical. It yeah. could be practical, yeah. and then so you could have, for example, um, uh, five uh, uh, fights prior with a 10, 15, 20 minute time limit, and then the last one of the night is no time limit. Ideally, how much time does an athlete need to get to warm up? Um, it, it depends on the athlete, but you'd you'd want at least fifteen minutes as an absolute minimum. So that seems doable, and it seems like you kind of achieve a mild state of warming up, just light jumping rope, and just sort of, just kind of like flow a little bit while it's happening, while the match is happening. You know, maybe eat a little bit of fruit and just prepare yourself. It could happen at any moment, or it could happen an hour from now. Yes. Um, it would have some interesting effects on pacing of the matches. Yeah. Um, there's basically two ways you can go. You can say to yourself, there's no time limit. So one of us is going down. Right. So I might as well go maximum intensity and I either finish this guy in 10 minutes or I get finished in 25 when I'm exhausted. Or the two athletes pace themselves over time and work and work and work until a decisive moment is reached one hour, one and a half hours in. Um, I remember when Gordon uh, fought Keenan Cornelius in a no time limit match relatively early in his career. Um, there was a fairly low pace of action. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a boring match, but it was slow paced for a reason. Both athletes were smart. Neither one had ever lost in a no time limit match previously, and one of them had to go down. And um, uh, ultimately, um, it worked into a, a very, very slow, long match of around one and a half hours, I believe, until Gordon won by submission. One and a half hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. But I love that. We would love it. Love it. It would be tough to explain to a, a complete beginner. Yeah, but maybe not have that for a complete beginner. Maybe, you know, that's like the king of kings. Let's let's see what's up. Let's get it. To, I remember I read a story about uh, when Mark Schultz first rolled with Hickson Gracie, mm. and he put Hickson in a cradle for an hour. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's amazing. He just had him in the cradle and just was hanging on to him, and it fucking lasted forever. I don't know if it's true, but I remember reading that and just imagining Hickson just breathing, his breathing exercise, just waiting, and Hickson eventually got out and strangled him. Amazing. But- it took a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mark was a he, freak. He was a athlete. freak athlete. Yeah. I mean, he was an amazing wrestler. When you see him, you ever see the video of him? Um, I forget. I think it was a man from Iran or Turkey. I forget who the guy was. Oh, he, you're talking about he the, hit the, the 1984 Olympics. Yeah, yes. he fought the uh, the Turkish uh, athlete. I believe yeah. that Turk was actually the favorite. He was the world champ from the previous year, I believe. And uh, yeah, he legitimately broke his arm with Kimura. Yeah, he tore it apart. Yeah, I mean it was a wild. See if we can find that, because it's pretty wild. I mean, it, first of all, he's just a ball of muscle. Yes. I mean, Mark Schultz in his prime was a fucking savage. I understand he was actually a gymnast before he was a wrestler. I believe it. And he started wrestling relatively late. His really? brother Dave started much earlier than him. Wow. And uh, and convinced him to try it. Um, his. Uh, his athleticism was fucking ridiculous and really unfortunate that um, Brigham Young 
university would not let him compete that's, in the that's UFC. Right. Yeah. He had that one fight, yes. which is one of the things that infuriates me to no end about the movie about his life story. Because in the movie about his life story, he faces a Russian guy in this one cage fight that he has. But it's a, it's a part of mixed martial arts history that he fought Big Daddy Goodrich. Yes. Big Daddy comes out with the, the karate gi on. Big Daddy was a big, giant striker. He wasn't a Russian. He was an American. He was a Canadian, actually. And you, What was the motivation for them changing history? Like assholes. That? Assholes in Hollywood That's who just decide motivation. that they want to put their own spin on things. You know, let's make it a Russian guy. Like, for no fucking reason, they changed this man's life story. For no reason. It makes no sense. Makes no sense. The it Cold War was over at that point. <laughs> but not only that, there's no pro or con to doing it. There's yeah. no, you're just changing history. Imagine if instead of uh, Reggie Jackson hitting home runs for the Yankees, you just had put in some other random person. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Like, history is history. Martial arts history is no different than football history or baseball history. It's fucking history. You can't change it. Yeah. You're doing a movie on a man's life story. And if, if you're going to change that, in like, I mean, it was an important moment in terms of mixed martial arts. But for his life, it's really not important that, you know, he fought this guy, but that's who he fought. It's just what it is. Yeah. If you change that, what what other important moments of his life did you lie about? True. What other yeah. weird shit yeah. did you change? Yeah. yeah. Because you just once you lose credibility right. in one area, it's, it's open season. I mean, it was a, else. the reason why I say it's not important because it was a it, it was a walkthrough for him. He just took Big Daddy down, it, it beat was him a up. Very impressive match. By very him. impressive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was an insane wrestler. Yeah. He was so good. Just took him down at will anytime he wanted to. And he, I think he could have done that to virtually everybody in the division. And he probably could have been a world champion, but they will never know because they never let yeah. him fight again. Yeah. But the fact that they change the the opponent and they p just made up some random guy like I don't it doesn't make any sense. Like what else did you lie about? Because you lied about that. Because now I got to look at that whole movie. Like what is this movie real? Yeah. Like, what is this movie? I know I know Dupont killed his brother. I know that for a fact. What else? But what all the other stuff did you just make up? The fuck did you do here? It just yeah. infuriates me. Yes, yes, this is it. Watch this. So he dives in this Kimura and boom, just tears it apart, pins the guy, and tours. And now, what did they do? Did they disqualify him for that? Um, I, if I remember correctly, uh, he was there, there was a weird rule where. Uh, because it occurred early on in the matchups, I believe that was either his first or second match, uh, you could be put back into the action despite a, uh, either a disqualification or a, a, a no result or something like that. There was a, uh, the rules were, were quirky back then. And um, I believe because it was early on in the, uh, uh, in the Olympic roster, um, he, he was allowed back into competition despite the uh, dis disqualification. Yeah, here it says, uh, somewhat graphic, showing the Turk's elbow being broken since the Turk could not continue. Obviously, Mark was still able to come away with the gold medal. This is commentary and then shows the move breaking the... Give me one more time on that. Let me see that one more time because it's fucking crazy. It's such an effective technique. It's, um... Oh, so they're going to show it in a slow motion version here. It's funny that this is illegal. For us, it's like, oh, perfect. Oh, my God. Like, that is literally exactly like Minotaro and Frank Mir. Yes. Same break. Upper yeah. upper yeah. arm yeah. break. 
Yeah. The Jacare Souza fight from against uh, Muniz from uh, a couple weeks ago. Yes. How insane was that? And amazing. And again, the the bone breaking rather yeah. than the uh, the soft tissue of the elbow. And so loud too. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. When Clearly I was in... audible. Even as it happened, you knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen a guy's arm break in that position before? Yes. You have. Yeah. 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 Um, the uh, Jujigatami, the straight arm lock, is uh, uh, always compounded when the forearm is captured behind the back. Mm. It creates a much more uh, efficient interplay between lever and fulcrum and um, much, much harder to twist out and deny the effects of leverage. And uh, so you see some particularly nasty breaks with that, with that version. That one was scary to me because I was picturing like training room situations and I was like, that, like there wasn't a lot of time to tap there. Yeah, yeah. It happened pretty quickly. Yeah. Anytime you start with um, uh, the arm captured behind the back, the arm's already extended when the lock begins. And the degree of safety in any joint lock is always reflected on the, uh, by, by the degree to which the joint is already close to breaking point at its inception. Uh, so, for example, normally when you get attacked in Jujigatama, your hands are locked offensively. So there's a 90-degree bend in your arm. So there's a long range of motion before threatening uh, any form of, uh, of catastrophic damage. But when the arm is trapped behind the back, you already start with a straight arm. And mm. so any small movement forward will take it into the breaking zone. See if you can find that. I don't know if the UFC's pulled that offline. Do they Do they have that? It's got to be somewhere. Someone must have put it on YouTube. It's uh, very interesting. What's interesting is Muniz said before the fight that he believed he had a grappling advantage over Jacques Array, which is wild talk, right? That's um, wild talk. T- talk is one thing. Um, justification is another. What was his reasoning for saying that? Did well, he, did I don't... Did he just make the statement or did he argue for it? Well, I am not aware of his uh, grappling credentials. I, I really didn't know too much about him other than watching some highlights online. But uh, Alex Davis, who I have a lot of respect for, he said to me after the fight, he's like, I'm telling you, this guy is a fucking freak. He's like, he's incredible. He's a really talented grappler. Interesting. And when you see the, just, first of all, the, the is, took down Jacare at will multiple times. So let's see if, we'll see it here again. Oh. Bring it back oh, all the way to the beginning. That snap is so loud. Yeah. It, that is a horrific sound. I admire Jacare's stoicism there. Yes. Impressive. Oh, yeah. He smiled. He said good job to the guy afterwards. Hugged him with his left. I mean, pretty crazy. But that man is, uh, he's got a bright future. And that's a crazy division right there, too. I mean, Has there been so any talk talent. of his next fight? No, nope. I mean no, it just happened, so we'll see. Yeah. I mean, right now the uh, the the title fight is uh, two weeks from today or two weeks from tomorrow. Israel Adesanya and Martin Vittori, uh, Marvin Vittori, rather fight again. They have a rematch of a, a very difficult fight that uh, happened for Israel's first fight in the UFC. Interesting. Yeah, Vittori's a beast, man. He's a he's a very dangerous guy. Really how, well-rounded. How long ago since the first fight? I want to say 2017, if I remember change. correctly. There's, yeah, there's both athletes so, when did, change uh, a lot. I think it was 17, 17 or 18. Not that long ago. Israel's rise to the throne has been pretty spectacular. It was very fast. I mean, I think he was three years in. He was a champ. 
18. Okay. And uh, so that was, uh, Marvin's a, f- a fucking tough guy, a really difficult guy to handle because he can do everything. He's, he's a good wrestler. He's a good striker. He comes from um, King's MMA, so Rafael Cordero mm. trains him, so, you know, really well-versed. So he's, uh, he's, a, he's a tough guy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was a superb break. Oh, and, uh, spectacular. Yeah, I must watch that guy in the future. Yeah. I mean, the, there's just so much talent now in the UFC. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, talent, it's, it's mixed martial arts talent that is, uh, to me, it's, it's so hard to put it all together. You know, you have these elite kickboxers, you have these elite grapplers, but to see someone put it all together inside the cage in, in, in mixed martial arts competition, it was, it's so, it's so impressive. interesting. Yeah. So many variables at play. There's something like that fight. You know, Jacques Ray was fucking him up standing up, and he's, he just figured his way out of, and t- took the most unlikely path to success against a super accomplished world champion grappler. Yeah, Jacques Ray's as good as they get. Yeah. And um, uh, perhaps some of the answer comes from what you just said, the idea that Jacques Ray was dominating the, the standing striking. Um, that probably clues you into the fact that over the last few years, the, the absolute majority of his training has been in standing striking. That's why you see the significant improvements and possibly at the detriment of his grappling. Yeah, um, that could be a problem, always right? Always remember that skills are perishable, mm-hmm. very perishable. Yeah. And uh, as you focus on one thing it always comes at the price of of your earlier skills and uh you'd be horrified at how quickly in a very competitive environment skills that you don't maintain don't last very long i remember that with elite wrestlers like elite yeah. guys like josh koscheck as he started really only concentrating on his striking he suddenly started getting taken down yes yeah it's kind of crazy right because yeah. you think like hey you know m- multiple time champion wrestling you know division one all-american no one's taking me down right and then you get out there and all of a sudden a guy like george st pierre didn't even wrestle in high school could take you down exactly yeah weird it's, um it's it's not even a question of your skills diminishing it's a question of your skills diminishing as another person's skills are are rising yeah and so you get that double effect and mm-hmm. um so if your skills drop 10 percent while the other guy's skills rise 60 percent that compounded effect of your downward trajectory and their upward trajectory that can cause problems in a fight. That's why it's so fascinating to see different athletes' approaches to mixed martial arts because it's so open-ended. You know, some athletes have a very grappling-heavy style. Some athletes have a very striking-heavy style. And like, what do you concentrate on? Mm-hmm. What do you say if you're a guy like George who really can do everything? Like. How do you how do you determine like how much striking to do versus how much grappling to do? How do you determine what to focus on the most? Is it based on opponents? In George's case, it was almost always based on opponents because George had such a well measured skill set that you could tailor his uh, his skill set to an, a given opponent. Um, if you are much more uh, uh, as it were, fixed in one skill set, you can't tailor your skill set to an opponent. So, for example, um, when um, a, a very, very jiu-jitsu-heavy uh, athlete like Damian Meyer fights, all of his fights look essentially the same. Uh, it's uh, it's 
Jiu-Jitsu 101, regardless of who his opponent is, doesn't matter whether he's a grappler. Um, the way he will fight a grappler is identical to the way he'll fight a striker. Um, with George, you had the luxury of being able to tailor uh, exactly how he would fight per opponent, whereas someone who comes from a single discipline has to play more or less the same game regardless of, uh, of who they match themselves against. Do you remember when Damian Maya had Kamaru Usman's back standing and they separated him? Yes, yeah. I was throwing shit at the TV <laughs> watching that the other day, going, what the fuck? Because yeah. I remember it at the time, and then I remember watching it again. Because Damien finished a lot of people in that position. And it was dry, and it was early, and it's like, why would you separate them? Yeah. Se I think if you're going to have five-minute rounds, which is so short in terms of grappling, right? And Craig Jones argued this yesterday, like how hard it is to finish a guy who doesn't even want to engage if you're just, you know, you only have five minutes. You should have no stand-ups ever. I, I couldn't agree more. But People get mad at me. Yeah. They go, boo, yeah. that's boring. But if you can't get up, you shouldn't get up. Yeah. If a guy can take you down and hold you down, tough shit. Um, I'm, my bias is always towards as little referee's intervention as possible. Might as well. And yeah. um, unfortunately, that's very much the minority view. I've seen people get stood up from side control, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. That is just, it's so hard to get someone in side control. <laughs> And you only have a few minutes to work, and you hear the referee going, let's work, let's work. Like, I don't know if it's referees with no grappling understanding, if they don't really understand how difficult it is to advance position and to, to finish someone, or if they're just playing to the, the crowd's you know, yeah. cheers and boos. I, I think, um, unquestionably, it, it's got to be tough when you just hear an entire audience booing just to, be, to stick to your guns and say, let them go. you got to get used to it. Yeah. yeah, you just got to get used to it. I mean, that's part of the job. But I, I, I couldn't agree more. The less in referee's intervention, the better. And that way yeah. you get a much more honest assessment of the of the outcome. In every sense, even pressed up against the cage. When, yeah. when a guy's got a guy pressed up against the cage and he's just holding him there, get out. Get out of there. Yeah. You don't like it there? Get out of there. Or, or don't get out. But this is how it's playing out. And if people say it's boring. You fucking watch baseball. <laughs> you watch baseball, you think that's boring? At any moment, someone could do a spinning elbow and knock someone unconscious. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you, why, how could that possibly be boring? And if it is boring, then next time that guy fights, you should hope that he gets paired up with someone who's crazy, some some wild guy, it's like Prohoshka or something like that, who, who just charges out of the gate, guns blazing, and tries to take him out. <laughs> Let's see what happens then. Yes. Um, no, you, you're, you're absolutely right. Even in the uh, situations like the fence is usually... Uh, described as the most boring part of mixed martial arts. Yeah. You drive someone to events, nothing happens. But we've, you've seen on multiple occasions both the person being pinned on the fence and the person pinning the other person have achieved knockouts with, with as you described, uh, spinning elbows or short yeah. elbows. You've seen it so many times. Anything can happen at any time. So just let them go. Let them go, yeah. And if it turns out to be boring, we already know that athletes that are, are not exciting and don't do well, they're not as marketable, they don't do as well financially, that's just how it goes. Yeah. And their incentive to be more exciting, either they ignore it completely and just concentrate on winning like so many of them do, or they just decide to make their style a little bit more open, a little bit more wild, take some more chances. The way to think about it is don't let the booze of the crowd incentivize the athletes to, to attack. Let the eyes of the crowd incentivize the athletes to attack. 
Because if you're boring, the next time they're not going to watch you. Yes. Yeah. Let them select on their on their own. Don't listen to booze. Watch where their eyes are going. If you're an exciting fighter, you're going to have eyes on on the screen looking at you. That should be your incentive to action, not the booze of a crowd. When you're training athletes for jujitsu, and one of the interesting things about the Gordon Ryan conversation that I had recently, I didn't know that you are Gary Tonin's striking coach as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing oh. that you can do both, that you can train them in both jiu-jitsu and also train them in striking. And I know you have a background in striking, but still, when you're training an athlete like Gary, um, if you're training someone like Gordon for jiu-jitsu, I'm sure there's some emphasis on takedowns, but it's not a primary concern. The primary concern is submissions, right? Like the, oftentimes you'll see um, Gordon will sit, he'll yes. pull guard. The, the, all these things that are not uh, possible in MMA or That's very correct. rare. Yes. What? How much of a shift is it to train them for mixed martial arts? Because you're clearly training him to strike and training him to strike, but ultimately the the skill set, the best part of their skill set involves in submission. That's correct. Um, the big challenge for most jiu-jitsu players when they try to apply their their craft in mixed martial arts is one, can they get it to the ground? That's a challenge in itself. And an even greater challenge is, can you keep it on the ground? Okay, it means nothing if you take someone down if they just spring back up within three to five seconds. It's it's energy spent that had no reward. Um, a sad thing about jiu-jitsu is that when it's practiced, there's almost always a kind of gentleman's agreement that there's gonna be a top player and a bottom player. And if you start in the bottom, you stay in the bottom. The moment you get into a mixed martial arts context, that goes right out the window. And now you have two responsibilities. You don't just have to pass your opponent's guard from top position. You have to hold them down while you're doing it. And that's, that's not easy. Um, when you look at the notion of escape in jiu-jitsu, the overwhelming majority of escapes in the sport of jiu-jitsu are escapes to guard position. If you're mounted, you elbow escape, you put him back in guard. If the guy's got side pin on you, you elbow escape, put him back in guard. If the guy's behind you, you do a forward roll, spin back into him, put him back in guard. 90% of the escapes in jiu-jitsu are escapes back to guard position. And so when you start in bottom position, you tend to stay in bottom position. Now contrast that with the sport of wrestling, where the overwhelming majority of escapes are escapes to standing back up to a neutral position on your feet. That means that when jiu-jitsu players face other forms of grappling, they're not trying to put us back in guard, they're trying to stand up. And jiu-jitsu players never practice against that when they're doing their daily training. Mm. And so suddenly you've got a guy who just assumes for his entire career that if he's on top, the other guy's gonna play guard. And this guy's not playing guard at all, he's just pushing your head, standing up and hip icing up to his feet. The jiu-jitsu guy's like, well, I had top position, why aren't you playing guard? And so they're now put into an area where nothing in their training has really prepared them for this. And jiu-jitsu is going to have to mature. I've always said jiu-jitsu is one of the greatest products I ever saw in my life. I wouldn't have invested 30 years of my life into jiu-jitsu if I didn't believe that with all my heart and all my soul. But like any great product, it has its deficiencies. Jiu-Jitsu always had three major deficiencies. 
leg locks, takedowns, and thirdly, the one that no one talks about, the ability to impose top position once it's gained. A huge part of my career has been the recognition and the attempt to change these three great faults in jiu-jitsu. As much as I love jiu-jitsu, we've got to take a step back and take an honest look at it. It's got these three deeply entwined faults within it. Leg locks was the most obvious one. In a game which was supposedly all about control leading to submission, there was an arbitrary rule that 50% of the body couldn't be attacked. That was lunacy. And over the last 10 years, I believe it's fair to say we've reached a point where that is no longer the case, that that is a great weakness within Jiu-Jitsu. The younger generation of Jiu-Jitsu, I would match them against any grappling art in the world on leg locks with no fear whatsoever. uh, I couldn't have said that 15 years ago, but things have changed. Now we need to address the other two great weaknesses. Jiu-Jitsu has to do something about the crisis which is starting to emerge around takedowns and the ability to impose top position. What you're seeing among jiu-jitsu athletes now who go into mixed martial arts is they just have to turn to other arts. They have to learn wrestling. They have to learn these. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is that jiu-jitsu has become a a smaller and smaller component of mixed martial arts rather than what it was when it first started, which is a dominant force in mixed martial arts. Now, for most of the athletes, jiu-jitsu is something you learn to stay out of some pesky submission holds. It's not the be-all and focus for most of the athletes in mixed martial arts. Most of them are centered around kickboxing skills and and wrestling. Um, I think that we have done a great job of overcoming one out of three great problems in jiu-jitsu, but there's still two more to go. I don't believe it's a satisfactory answer. I believe it's a cop-out to say, we'll just learn some wrestling. Just as many people told me 20 years ago, oh, you want to learn leg locks? Just do some samba. I was never happy with that answer. That's why I didn't do it. Okay, first of all, samba as a sport doesn't even allow heel hooks. It only allows straight leg locks, knee bars and Achilles locks. There's no heel hooks in, in competition samba. And so if I'd just taken that approach of learn another martial art, learn leg locks from that, the whole heel hook revolution never would have taken off. Where did the heel hook originate from? Originate? I, I can't give an accurate answer. Um, when I began jiu-jitsu in the 1990s, most of the early people I saw employing, uh, employing heel hooks were from Japan, people like Romina Sato. Imanari. Mm. Um, uh, is a little bit after yeah. Uh, Sato, but yeah, he was definitely one of them. Um, and so it's tough to say where its origins are. There's no mention of it in uh, in judo textbooks. The the one leg lock they mention um, is just a, a hackneyed version of a um, of a knee reap, not very effective. Um, is it possible that it's a catch wrestling technique? It's possible. That's but, a lot of what came yeah, to yeah, Japan, right? Yeah. Um, but then it's it's. Uh, the history of catch wrestling is, I, I'm, I'm no expert in it, but it, there's so many competing points of views and mm-hmm. uh, there's so little reliable information. There's very little video of, or photographs which definitively show the application of them. Um, uh, they do, uh, there's video footage of Elio Gracie demonstrating a heel hook. It's, a, it's not a particularly 
well applied heel hook, but it, it is recognizably a heel hook. Um, so it seems that they did know about it. And this is from the twenties uh, or thirties? No, no or I'm, I'm, I'm guessing later this would in be, life. Uh, I'm guessing by his age, this would be like seventies. He, he looked pretty old when he was he was doing it. Um, so it appears that there was knowledge of it, uh, but as to its origins, uh, I can't give you a, any accurate statement on that. I can't give you any evidence-based statements. It's a really good question. Like, when yeah. did it? When was it first applied in competition yeah. Uh, yeah. on a large scale? Uh, but I, uh, I've never seen any compelling evidence to say this is like the first, e- you know, yeah. examples. Um, for example, the, the triangle stranglehold. Um, there's very strong evidence to su- suggest that its origins are shortly before the, the First World War. There appears to have been no use of the, the triangle prior to that. Um, so we do have a pretty good idea that the, the triangle stranglehold started sometime around 1910 to 1913 in Japan. There seems to be no evidence of, uh, of triangles used before that. There's no mention of them in Greek textbooks of pancreation or any, anything. Mm. Um, what art was it used in in Japan? Uh, in judo competition. Mm. That's, that's an interesting thing because Maeda was from a generation, he, he left Japan, so he's from a generation of judo players that didn't know the triangle. So when he uh. went to Brazil and taught, he didn't teach the triangle because he'd never learned it. it. He left before really? 1910. That's why the triangle was only part of Jiu-Jitsu uh, in the 1970s. Um, really? Yes, it's an odd history. So uh, when Elio was young, he wasn't, there was no There's triangle? There's no triangle. Yeah. Wow. It was, uh, I believe the story is that Holes Gracie had a student who read a judo book and saw a triangle and showed it to Holes, and Holes brought it into uh, the, the Gracie family. I believe that's the story. But um, Maeda left Japan before the triangle was invented. And uh, so it was never part of his instruction. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, what it, about the kimura? Because the kimura that uh, was the this, this, this is very old. Um, double you, wrist yeah, lock. Yeah, you, you see um, uh, old drawings and renditions of it from medieval times, and I mm. also believe not only in Japan but also in other cultures as well. So th- this one's pretty, pretty clear. Interesting though that they named it after a guy who beat Elio. Uh, only the Brazilians yeah. name it that. The Japanese call it Urigurami. Okay. So they have their own name for it. So uh, uh, only the, the Brazilians call it Kimura. But we all call it Kimura now. Yes. I mean, it's kind of universal. Like, from the Brazilians. Like if, you, if I was doing commentary and I said, he's got a double wrist lock, people go, what are you saying? That's true. You know? Imagine if you said Udigarami, they'd Ooh, freak out on you. Yeah. Well, um, you love all those Japanese names. Yeah. Juju Katami, you love all that stuff, right? Um, yeah, I, I like to, to give credit where it's due. Mm-hmm. And um, the, these old masters were remarkable people, remarkable people. Sure. And, um, you know, you can still see old black and white footage of judo masters like uh, Oda um, teaching. And they had some pretty advanced stuff. Some of it was really impressive. Yes. And... Um, uh, so when it's applicable, I, I like to give credit. Now, I don't always do it. I, I use the term kimura. So you're probably asking, well, why don't you use all Japanese terms? Why only some? Well, there's practical considerations too. Um, the Japanese uh, call kimura urigurami. Now, in a crowded auditorium when my athlete's competing, I can't use the name urigurami because it sounds too much phonetically like ashigurami. Mm. So if I call out urigurami when you got thousands of people screaming, then my athlete might mishear me. So I use Kimura and, um, because phonetically it's so different that there's no confusion. So uh, there's, uh, there's also practical elements too. Some of the Japanese names are too long. Uh, for example, um, 
uh, Udigarami has two variations where one is up the American lock and down, which we call Kimura. And um, the Japanese term doesn't distinguish between the two. Mm. You have to use a much longer terminology in order to make that distinction. It's too long. I can't call out like a a four-word phrase. By the time I've relayed the message, the the opportunity is gone. So there's practical considerations in the use of names as well. Wasn't the Americana, that was another thing, Holes was famous for applying that as well. I and believe that to um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, I, I believe the idea of, uh, first of all, it's a strange thing to call it Americana. I, yeah. be, I believe it was named after an American wrestler who used to visit or uh, train with Halls, who used to use it a lot. Mm. And so they, they named, uh, an American was using it, so they called it Americana. I could be wrong about that, but I believe that's the, that's the legend. It's so fascinating that although martial arts have been around for so long, so many thousands of years, that we can really trace very recent spectacular progress. Like from 1993, from the original UFC to 2021 where we're at today, what a spectacular explosion of ability, of innovation, of just the level of technique is so much higher than it ever was before. I don't think there's another thing like it in terms of athletics. If you look at any other sport, there's incremental increases in the abilities of the athletes, but nothing comparable to martial arts. I'm so glad you said this because um, we're, we're very privileged to live as martial artists in this age. This is, in my opinion, is the most exciting time for a martial artist to be alive that I'm aware of. Maybe yes. in ancient Greece, maybe they had something with pancreation that was more exciting than this. But you'd have to show me some pretty damn good evidence. If you could take Gordon Ryan and bring him back to ancient Greece, he would fuck those dudes up. Do you know how easy it would be? You know how amazing it would be? All those guys would line up, bring their champions, and they'd be like, what is he doing? In general, I, I would agree with you. I, um, as a general rule, I believe that later generations almost always beat earlier generations. Like Jesse Owens was a great sprinter, but... Usain Bolt would destroy him in a foot race. It's, there's just no getting around The that. only place where I make exceptions is boxing. Because I think there are boxers from the old era that just would be spectacular no matter what. I think Muhammad Ali would be, especially when he was Cassius Clay before he mm, was yes, stripped yeah. of his title. You take the guy who beat Cleveland Big Cat Williams, and I think he boxes with almost anybody of any era. I think he's just amazing. Marvin Hagler. I think you could take Marvin Hagler, stick him in with any middleweight champion of all time and any time in any any era of boxing, and you're you're just dealing with a champion. I mean, it's just just because there's not much difference in boxing. Like there's you see some unique approaches like Floyd Mayweather and his shoulder roll and his his incredible defense, and you see it. We were talking before this podcast when we we're talking about Canelo Alvarez how he learned from the mm. Floyd Mayweather fight yes. his head movement and so you're seeing these steps where they're learning but go back to Willie Pep we'll go back to Pernell Whitaker I mean per- Pernell Whitaker it's spectacular yeah, defense agreed yeah I mean um, I, I hear you Joe and, the, and I think there's some some good arguments to suggest that you're you may be onto something here let's look for example at um, Sugar Ray Leonard versus Floyd Floyd Mayweather's father Mm. which was a classic fight, by the way. Yes, wonderful amazing fight. Um, now, um, you get to see just how good Sugar Ray Leonard was in the 19, uh, 1980s with that match. Now, you could make the argument, as Sugar Ray Leonard does, 
to this day that Floyd Mayweather isn't that much better than his father was, that they're of comparable skill level. And and you could argue on that basis, exactly as you said, that maybe some of those guys from the 1980s would have gone against the best guys of this generation and done just fine. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that it's difficult to measure combat sports. Yeah. Uh, in the case of uh, Olympic sprinting, there's an obvious measurement here, time. And, uh, and so you see the progress more clearly. Nonetheless, as a general rule, I do think even in combat sports, earlier generations tend to lose to later generations in most cases. There could be some exceptions, but I think, for example, if Kimura, who was the greatest judo player of his generation, went up against Yamashita, even if you took away the size difference, I just think Yamashita wins. Just, he just knows more. He's just had the benefits of, of um, the insights of one generation pile upon the next and the next and the next. They create a compounding effect in learning where the athletes from a later generation start from a higher point than their predecessors did. And so as a general rule, I'll always favor the, the, the more recent generations over previous generations. But um, to your credit, I do think there are some exceptions in combat sports more than other sports. I, I agree with you as a general rule. Uh, the, the exception I make is boxing. The reason why I make that exception in boxing is because I don't think the progress has been as spectacular as it's been in martial arts. And I don't think the approach is as comprehensive as it is in grappling or clearly in mixed martial arts. Interesting. Mix, in mixed martial arts, I don't think there's any argument whatsoever yeah. that 93 compared to... Like, I was just watching one of the fights from the early UFCs, and it's it's almost comical the difference in the level of skill yeah. today from just debut athletes that are just starting yeah. out but boxing if you take like the roberto duran who beat sugar ray leonard at 147 pounds which wasn't even his best weight class his ba best weight class when he beat ken buchanan at 135 pounds i mean that one was, he was a savage i mean that lightweight roberto duran is one of the greatest boxers that ever lived but boxing is two hands a variety of techniques applied in a bunch of different ways, but it's just two hands. You have defense that's applied in a bunch of different ways. You have an understanding of, of distance and timing and how to feint and throw that timing off and head movement and, and be, being able to anticipate which direction attacks are coming. All that stuff was already understood. It was already understood with Joe Lewis. It was already understood with Sugar Ray Robinson. You know, and it's just different approaches in terms of the ability to prepare an athlete more scientific approach in terms of nutrition, rest, recovery, all those different things. But there's something to be said for hard-nosed, disciplined, warrior training camps, like the kind that Rocky Marciano used to go through, like the kind that Sugar Ray Robinson used to go through. I mean, these guys just, they were young enough so that they probably didn't apply the same sort of rules that strength and conditioning coach would apply today. But you guys don't apply those rules. You guys train seven days a week. So you guys fly in the face of that. That's right? true. It's yeah. true. There's, yeah. there's something to be said for just hard work and um, discipline. The, uh, I, I love the examples that you're using from, from boxing in terms of um, uh, their conditioning program. Uh, if, you, if you look at the history of boxing, all of those boxers you mentioned grew up in a generation where the most important part of modern boxing was completely absent. The most important part of modern boxing training is pad work. Ooh. When did they start pad work? I believe it was the early 1980s. 
Wow. So people like Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Robinson, never trained on pairs. Isn't that crazy Didn't to even think know what of? they were. So many of the greatest boxers of all time, Willie Pip, none of them trained on pairs. You're blowing my mind because I never thought of that before. Mm. I literally never thought of that. Isn't that fascinating? That's so fascinating. And yet now the majority of, of boxing training is done on the pads. Like it's a, it's a literally a revolution in boxing training. And you've got to ask yourself, what was the difference? What did they do back then? And you see there was probably a lot more emphasis on sparring. Mm. That sparring was the, and heavy the, back the, the focus. Yeah. That's crazy. I wonder who's the first guy to figure out pads. It's a fascinating question. I've, oh. never, I've never seen a definitive answer to it. I literally never thought that until today, until right now. Yeah. Like when and was the, the other first big time question you got to ask yourself is, were Western boxers the first people to use pads, or was Thailand before them? Because they used their own version of pads for kicks. Yeah. Did the Thais come first with kick pads, or did the Western boxing coaches come first with hand pads? So these are both interesting questions, and I don't know the answer to either. It's a very good question. It's interesting how the Thais sort of devised this strategy of training. It's a different strategy of training. Yes. You know, like they're they're all about like the idea of training Thai without pads is like it's alien. Yeah, yeah. And I think the idea of training boxing in 2020 without pads is also alien. Yeah. Well, you know, Julio Cesar Chavez never hit the speed bag. There's a there's a funny video of him uh, trying to hit the speed bag and he doesn't know how to do it. And this was when he was the best in the world. You imagine some guy looking at him, man, that guy sucks. Look at him, <laughs> look at him on the speed bag. But he, he doesn't was, know what he's doing. He was laughing about it. He was going like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, when you think about it, what actual relationship between boxing punching as done in a fight and speed bag is there? None. And yet. And yet, it's a and thing. yet guys do that all day, every day. Like, who punches anybody yeah. like this ever? I, it's so strange. It's yeah. such a strange how, way to... How, how did that become an institution? We're weird. Didn't someone say, like, hey, coach, I've never hit anyone like that in my life. Why are you making me do this? Yeah. I just look at all that's Rocky. all Rocky does in the thing. He only hits that and meat. The rest of it, he's not doing anything. Doesn't he's he hit just, a, He doesn't hit a heavy bag? He's just mom, meat in the meat locker, and then he's doing push-ups and running. That's and it. And sit-ups. Yeah. yeah. The meat thing. Terrible technique, Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Go back and watch those old movies. You're like, hey, you straighten that up, man. Yeah. Come on. And yet, those crazy old movies probably started more people boxing you know, and doing martial arts than, than all of the technically perfect demonstrations of boxing technique and then actual sports. I'm sure more people started boxing watching Rocky than by watching Roberto Duran actually box. That's absolutely true. I'm sure. I'm sure. Same thing with blood sport and martial arts. I mean, you look at yeah. blood sport, it's, a, it's like a comedy show. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> like, sure. how many people started out of blood sport? More than started by watching the UFC, I'm quite certain. Yeah. I think if you could go back in martial arts and trace like what started more people in martial arts, I think it's Bruce Lee. Mm. I would think it's Bruce Lee. That's, uh, I think you might be right about yeah. that. Because that's what started me. Yeah. I mean, I was throwing kicks and now, was it, doing all it, that. Isn't that crazy? What year did you start martial arts? Well, I started fucking around when I was like 11-ish, somewhere around there. I, I took a kung fu class and I would like fuck around with my friends. What I year are we talking about here? 
I started Taekwondo when I was 15, very seriously, like immediately seriously. Did and you that start was because you had seen a Bruce Lee movie? No. No, I started, I'd taken karate before then. I went to uh, Joe Esposito's Karate Center in Newton, Massachusetts, and he was like a, a local, uh, really well-known and respected karate guy, and I took his class and when I was 14, but it was too hard to get over there. It was hard to like, get on the bus, mm -hmm. and yep. it, was, it was complicated. But um, I went to a baseball game at Fenway Park yeah, with a friend of mine, and we were headed home, and there was a long line to get on the T because everybody would leave Fenway Park, mass exodus, and all these people were on the public transportation. And uh, we decided to walk up the stairs to uh, just check out this Taekwondo school. And uh, as I was walking up the stairs, I heard this sound. And this sound was like, whoomp, ching, whoomp, ching, whoomp, ching. And the whoomp was the kick hitting the bag. And the ching was the bag flying and snapping against the chains that were hanging from the wall. That's impressive. And there was a guy named John Lee, who was the national champion at the time, who was training for the World Cup. And he was in his prime. And uh, he was a guy I learned from a lot. I learned my turning sidekick from him. I learned a lot of competition techniques from him. I learned like I learned how to approach fighting because he was a ferocious guy, just this guy from the streets of Chelsea, which is like a really tough neighborhood. And he was uh, just this r r long, tall guy with phenomenal power. And I remember watching him kick the bag and bend it in half. And I remember thinking, fuck, I want to learn how to do yeah. that. I was obsessed, like instantaneously obsessed. I signed up right then and there, and it changed my whole life. I never played baseball again. I was into baseball. Like I would play baseball in school. I would always play baseball. I was like, fuck baseball. I want to do what that guy can do. I remember th watching him hit that bag, and it was like a fucking car accident. Yeah. Every time he hit it, just whoop, and that bag would just bend in half and go flying, and I was obsessed, obsessed. I spent every day at that place from then on, every day. I was teaching there within a year. Impressive. How old were you? I was obsessed. 15? 15. Wow. Yeah. Just full-on obsessed because I couldn't believe someone could do that. Yeah. I'd never seen anybody kick a bag before, ever. And that particular school, uh, J. Kim Taekwondo Institute in Boston, was very power-oriented. Like there was a lot of schools back then that were about points and winning tournaments and winning uh, the karate style point tournaments and winning Taekwondo tournaments on points. So it was about speed and movement and being able to hit someone quick and get out of there. My instructor's position was what good does it matter? Like what good does it do you if you can win a tournament but you can't even hurt someone on the street? Like you should be able to fight. And you should be able to learn how to fight. And so we did a lot of sparring with headgear and kickboxing. And it was a hard style. He was a hard man. And his, his approach was always power. He's like, I want you to kick them. So even if you kick them in their arms, they become terrified. I want you to hit them so hard that they know that any mistake they make is going to leave them unconscious. So his approach was always about power. Like it was all power. So when you saw, when I saw John Lee, who was probably like maybe like late twenties at the time, in his prime, just boom, bending that back. It was like to me, it was like a shot, just a crazy drug. Like instantaneously, I was obsessed. <laughs> it was the perfect time because I could have gone up there and it could have been a, a child's class. 
You know, I could have just walked up there and, uh, you know, a bunch of people were doing forums. Yeah. And I'd be like, what yeah. is this nonsense? And I would have walked out of there. But I, I literally walked in during the absolute perfect time. See, this tall, long black belt just sending this bag into orbit. It was crazy. Wow. I'll never forget it. I think there's two important lessons from that. The first is that how you approach martial arts is a big part of their appeal. Just as we talked at the idea that submission is the universal appeal of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. In any kinetic uh, energy-based martial art like taekwondo or karate or boxing or kickboxing, that ability to just impart ferocious and intimidating kinetic energy onto a target is everything. Everything. That's their version of submissions. Like just as submissions can snap an arm, they can you know, put your lights out in a, in a heartbeat with a good blow. That's, that's their primary appeal. And I'm impressed by the fact that that's he, this guy identified what is the appeal, and it, and it showed on you as a, as a 15-year-old boy. You looked at this, and you're like, my God, I've got I've to learn this power. He not um, only imparted that on you, it was part of the, like, the way they marketed the class. Mm. So like the heavy bag was right near the lobby. So like there's a line of heavy bags. So as you walk in, there's this big training hall, but the heavy bags were right there. So if someone was coming in to go check out classes, he would tell me to go kick the bag. Interesting. Yeah, he would say, go smash that bag. That was and, the best advertising they ever Oh, did. yeah. Yeah. Because if you could watch someone do that, it's undeniable. You see the amount of force yeah. that a guy like John could generate? I mean, it could change me. Him, watching him changed my life. Like you're looking at that bag and you're saying, like, if that was me. Dead. Dead. All this broken, yeah. bleeding internally. I am just couldn't. And he was big. He was a light heavyweight at the time, which I think, you know, the, the weight classes are all a little bit different, but I think it was still somewhere in the range of 175 pounds. And uh, just watching him do that, literally, like, here's my life. I'm going in this direction. went like this. Hard right turn. And then changed everything. Wow. Became a different person. And that's the second thing, that so much of what determines the direction of our lives is completely accidental yeah. and arbitrary. Like, that was a life-changing moment for you. And as you said, if you'd come 15 minutes earlier, you and I probably wouldn't even be having this conversation. You probably never would have gotten into martial arts. You'd be playing baseball. It's that crazy. nuts? Yeah. It's really crazy. That one day changed my whole life. But not just the day, 15 minutes, five minutes, yeah. 10 minutes, however long it took for that guy to, to start his workout. And then becoming friends with him and uh, having him as a mentor and having him uh, show me like different techniques and tricks that he'd use. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, an interesting guy. Because uh, just fucking loved fighting. Just loved it. Like right before he would go to fight, he would have this wild look in his eyes and everybody would watch him fight because he was so known for knocking people out. Because training under Mr. Kim, the, the emphasis on power was so primary. It was everything. And John didn't care if you hit him a couple of times. He was just always waiting, always waiting for the opening. Man, we had these team competitions where we'd be of like uh, different weight classes of our team versus different weight classes of uh, this other team. And uh, we fought in this uh, tournament, and there was these uh, guys, are really high-level guys from Korea. And they were on, and Korean guys were always scary because everybody was like, that's the motherland of Taekwondo. Of course, and, yeah. you know, you see Korean national champions, they were so technical and so good and so fast. And I remember John was sparring, well, he was fighting in this tournament against this Korean guy, and he kept getting hit. 
He kept getting hit by this guy. The guy kept scoring on him, and everybody was cheering and cheering. And you could see John just just staying calm, just waiting, just waiting, just waiting. And then there was this moment where he he faked. The guy made a movement. The guy tried to charge in, and John turned and hit him with that same kick and sent that dude crumbling and screaming in agony. Just, ah! And he just turned around and looked at me and raised his eyebrows. And he, and he was laughing about it afterwards. He goes, I knew it was just time. I was just, yeah. I was just looking for the moment. I was just looking for the moment. And he found it. And it was just seeing him hit that bag and then being on the same team as him years later, competing as a black belt and watching him do this to this national champion and sending this guy just crumbling to the ground. Just that that kind of ability obsessed me. I just I, that's all I wanted to do was like figure out how to kick someone like that. That's all I wanted to do. Um, probably the, the the single most impressive thing in in martial arts is the ability to finish a fight. Like and having that ability changes the very way in which you fight, as you described with your with, with your mentor. Um, and you see the same thing in jiu-jitsu. Like if you if you know that if you get a hold of this guy's arm, leg, or neck, it's it's literally just done. You've yes. got the mechanics to just put him away. You can endure anything. You can be pinned, held down, passed everything, and you'll just bide your time and get to that and then get to that finishing position. It it gives you a kind of uh, relaxation in, in the storm of of competition where you just say, okay, I can be behind. I can be down on points, but if I get a hold of you, it's yes. done. And it's it's a it's a true like, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word superpower but in the realm of martial arts it is a kind of a superpower the ability just to finish at any given time is a it's a different thing when you fight someone who you know can knock you out with a single punch like this you know Francis Ngannou is a tough opponent to deal with because you make even a single error and it's just good night he's the ultimate example yeah. of that yeah because yeah. he's such a freak athlete just like how rare is it to see a man who's a natural 275 pounds just enormous yeah. person with f just ridiculous power. You know, the power is it's the great equalizer. And we were talking about Canelo Alvarez before this, too. When we were yes. talking about the fight with Billy Joe Saunders when I was showing the picture of all the fractures yeah. that Billy Joe got on his face. He's, to me, the perfect example of what's possible as a fighter because although he has this one-shot power, he also has spectacular technique. He does everything right, everything right. His defense is on point, his timing, his, his footwork is everything is, he does everything so well, but also has that thunderous power where he puts it all together in such an intelligent and, and well-measured way. I mean, I fucking love watching that guy yeah. fight. Yeah. Because he embodies, like Floyd has the spectacular talent and amazing technique, but he doesn't have that power. It's a different thing with a guy like Canelo because it's rare that someone has that kind of power but yet also develops that kind of amazing defensive ability that he has. The integration of extreme finishing power with defensive soundness is the highest ideal in all of yes. martial arts. And you see it, when you see it, it's a truly special thing. Like you see the, the mature Canelo uh, Alvarez, you see it in him. Yeah. You saw it in the 1980s with Mike Tyson, a guy who could barely be hit at his peak, 
Yeah. It was hard to land a blow on Mike Tyson, but every blow he threw at you looked like he would take your head off. That Those are two extreme examples. Um, my job as a coach in jiu-jitsu was to try and push my athletes towards that. My athletes are known for their ability to escape. Um, they can get into terrible situations and, and dig their way out. They prove that time and time again in early EBI competitions. Um, but at the same time, they have devastating finishes. And that that martial arts ideal of the extreme integration of the ability to finish mixed with defensive soundness is the direction you want to push all martial arts, whether they be grappling or striking. It's one of the reasons why it's so fascinating to watch the approach of your athletes in comparison to some of these other athletes that have been competing for far longer because they're intimidated by the approach of these guys that are completely submission-based. And you see it. You see it in the reason why Gordon has such a hard time finding fights. You see it when these guys wind up talking about matching up. They want all these special rules. They want to do different things. They want to, they want to figure out a way. They're kind of pushing away before they even engage. They're yeah. talking a lot of shit, and they're puffing their chest up, but they're like, uh, how about we do it in the gi? You know, how about we do it this? How about we ADCDC rules? How about we do this? And there's all these different you know, caveats that they want to apply. And I think there's part of them that recognizes that they fucked up and they've been spending all this time trying to win on points, trying to stall, trying to do all these different things to be champions, but not embracing what is really, truly spectacular about not just jujitsu, but all martial arts, yeah, what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, um, I, I agree that that um, that ability to to manifest the ideal and that ideal based around uh, the combination of defensive soundness and extreme ability to, to finish. Um, it's like a, a, the universal appeal of martial arts. It's what took you, and as a 15-year-old boy, that's what made you turn your entire life in that direction. Um, that's what I saw as potential as a 28-year-old man when I began jiu-jitsu. And, uh, uh, and I think the more we stay true to that principle, the better the future of jiu-jitsu looks. 100%. It is what martial arts are supposed to be about. It's yeah. not supposed to be about winning by points. It's just, it's supposed to be about the ability to close the show, the ability to stop an opponent, the ability to strangle an opponent, the ability to end a fight. While denying him the ability to do that to yeah. us. Yeah. It's just so rare to see it applied the way your guys are applying it, where you you really do have a whole team that has the hardest, they're taking the hardest path. They're taking the most difficult path, but also taking the path of legends. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, uh, and, and long term, I, I'm always trying to impress upon them, this is the way to build a brand. This is the way to, you know, no one's gonna remember the guy that won by advantage four times in, in no. 2018. Like, they're gonna remember the guy who consistently came out, and this is not just true for my athletes. You see it among other great athletes too. You mentioned before, Marcelo Garcia, um, we talked about Hodger Gracie, everyone who embraced that idea of Braulio Estima, these were guys who went out and ruthlessly hunted for the submission. Yes. And they're the ones that people remember. Yeah, the only ones. Yeah, it's, um, I guess it's just, there's so many things that have to fall in line for that to be the main focus of your gym. And for a place like your place, you know, whether it's Henzo's or where you're at now in Puerto Rico, it relies on someone like you. And it's these conversations I've had with Gordon, I had it with Craig, 
there's only one John Donaher, and I don't know how you recreate that. That's what's crazy. It's like no one wants to be you. It's too hard. Like no one wants to be a guy that's there seven days a week that trains the martial arts, the mixed martial arts classes, trains the jujitsu classes, trains striking, trains them in grappling, and then goes and watches tape and studies like wrestling matches from the eighties and tries to figure out some new move. It's your and you don't have a family and you don't have other obsessions. You have a singular obsession with making these athletes the very best possible. I don't know how you do it, and I don't know how you do it without straying. Uh, I don't know how you do it where you're seven days a week, completely obsessed. It has to be your mind, your personality, your foot, like what, what the way you interface with martial arts is very unusual. To recreate that, you would require so much of a person. You're this weirdo that like was in like if if you were a character in a movie, I would go, yeah, good luck finding someone like that. Like there's not a lot of you out there. So for another team to be in the same space as you guys, to have the same sort of success ratio and to have the same sort of mindset, you need a guy like you. You need a guy who was teaching philosophy at Columbia, who just decides to get obsessed with jujitsu, like. How many of those are there? You need a guy who's you need a guy who's like fully completely dedicated to making his athletes the very best in the world, but also does some does it with a, a quiet intelligence. Your the way you even coach is different. Like it's, it's very you're a very weird guy. I hope you know that. <laughs> you're here with a fucking rash guard on. We're not rolling. Why do you have a rash guard on? But you wear rash guards every day. You 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 understand? It's very hard. To make a John Donner. So you've kind of you've raised the bar to this very bizarre and impossible standard. Um, a big part of it is uh, I'm just by nature a curious person. I, I, I just think that uh, we have a short time here on this earth and um, accumulating knowledge and uh, about the world around us is just part. It's a huge part of what makes us human. And People that aren't innately curious about the world in which they live are usually not very interesting people. Um, but uh, as far as, as, as martial arts go, I think that all human beings have a kind of innate response to martial arts that, that, that comes out of our uh, out of our biological history. We we grow up in a in a, a highly competitive world and human life is this kind of strange mix between competition and cooperation. Um, there's limited resources out there and a growing population and inevitably there's going to be conflict as people go into competition with each other. The earliest forms of competition between humans were probably empty-handed and then as weapons became to become employed primitive weapons and then as we got more and more sophisticated the weapons got more and more sophisticated but somewhere deep in our collective history there's this sense that it's important to know how to stand up for yourself physically and if you can't do that you're not going to survive in a competitive world so all of us I think in some kind of deeply buried part of our mind can can see martial arts and say hmm this this has some kind of innate appeal. It appeals to something very, very deep 
inside all of us that comes out of our ancestral history. But at the same time, unrestricted violence is a terrible, terrible thing. And no society can function with unrestricted violence. Human progress is impossible without it. And so what we find is humans have to acknowledge that in a competitive world, violence is part of our world, but that unrestricted violence is just as damaging as, uh, as being a complete pacifist in a, in a world of, uh, uh, of murderers. And so martial arts is the ideal of structured violence where you learn the techniques that can make you safe in a competitive world, but they're put into a socially acceptable framework where you're not harming the people around you. You're, in, you're involved in competition, but in a way which is not going to terribly injure you, either yourself or the person you're competing against. The violence, as it were, is reduced and made socially acceptable. Part of a, uh, It's taken to a level where it could be part of a functioning society. And if practiced, I sincerely believe, makes for a better society because it makes people acknowledge we are in a competitive world, that not all people in this world are good-hearted. And that at some point, you've got to be able to stand up for yourself. And if you can't, you don't want to be a saint in a world of murderers. You're not going to do well. Okay? But on the other hand, you don't want to be a murderer in a world of saints. You, know, you can't have that. And so martial arts, as it were, is the compromise between cooperation and competition. It gives you the ability to compete all the way down to physical violence. But at the same time, it takes the, the, uh, the violent aspect of martial arts and puts it into socially acceptable competition, socially acceptable structures that results in a population of people. If you had an entire society who practiced martial arts, so for example in Japan, everyone does judo in high school, you have uh, a group of people who can stand up for themselves and, uh, uh, and compete physically in a, in a potentially dangerous world, but at the same time they're socially cohesive and they're not using violence in a negative, destructive, antisocial fashion where they're harming people and stealing property or what have you. And I believe that's the greatest virtue of martial arts for society is that it finds that balance between humanity's basic fact that we live in a competitive world where there's limited resources and growing populations where physical violence is always going to be the the ultimate method of determining who wins in competition for those limited resources. And at the same time, doesn't mean we degenerate into a violent culture where no human or civil progress is possible because we're at each other's throats 24-7. And that I see as being the great social benefit of, of martial arts. So even someone like me who came from an academic background can look at martial arts and see that's an important thing. That could be a, a, a great benefit both to individuals and to the society in which they live. Yeah, I think that the the danger of martial arts and the danger of whether it's training or competition itself is one of the most intriguing aspects of it because it makes figuring out the problem so much harder. Because I always, I always describe martial arts as high-level problem-solving with dire physical consequences. That's a very good definition. Because... It is this thing where you're what you're really trying to do is overcome your fear, your anxiety, your emotions, 
and also apply technique, strategy, explosive force, conditioning, and discipline because you have had to have put the time in and training in order to get your vehicle to be functional in this extreme environment. You're, you're responsible for adding the horsepower to the engine. You're responsible for tuning the suspension. All these things are done through discipline and hard work. If you don't do those things, your body doesn't function well enough for you to even apply your own knowledge. So there's so many different levels to it. There's the actual technique, there's the knowledge of these techniques and how to apply them, and then there's the physical capabilities of your own body. Mm. And all of them together, there's, there's so it's so comprehensive there's so much going on that when you meet the really truly elite players whether it's Gordon or Gary or Hicks and Gracie or Hodger or Braulio Estima or any of these elite athletes they're exceptional human beings like very very unusual people with intense mindsets and they are the people that figure their way through this insane maze and by doing so they have They've provided an example of what's possible. They've, they've reached a very high level of human potential. And I think ultimately that's what martial arts are about. Mm. And it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, way of looking at it. I, it. I agree with you about the whole problem-solving aspect. That's, um, there's a sense in which when you're engaged in jiu-jitsu, you're both throwing problems at each other. And it comes down to can you solve the problems that I create for you faster than I solve the problems you create for me. And um, uh, that that more or less determines how I train my athletes because everything comes down to what is your speed of decision-making and problem-solving. Um, people talk about speed in martial arts all the time and almost always what they mean by that is physical speed. But the most important speed of all is speed of decision-making and problem-solving. And that's very much a mental thing. And uh, uh, a huge part of what I do as a coach is to try and reduce the time it takes to make critical decisions. Um, a big part of how we do that is by having systems in place per position. Because if you follow a system, you can, the system makes the decisions for you. You've already been in that position 10,000 times. You know exactly if I perform action A, there's going to be reaction B, C, D, and E. And then if I go forth into uh, action E, that's going to change those options. And, and you just go down this decision tree based upon the actions that you're making and the responses you're getting from them. And because you know what the system does and you know where the system leads to based on that decision tree, you're making decisions subconsciously, as it were. This, as I said earlier, the system is making the decisions for you because it's already in place. Um, and the other guy is trying to react to those with conscious thought. He's like, oh, man, what do I do now? I haven't been in this position before. So you're making decisions at a, at a rate several times faster than him in that one domain. And so um, I, I see a lot of virtue in, in your understanding of this idea of, of uh, decision-making and problem-solving. And a big part of, of my coaching program is to create systems to, to do exactly that, to take the decision-making and problem solving you do and reduce the time it makes, it, sorry, the time it takes for you to do that in the various common 
scenarios of jiu-jitsu. The application of these systems is what's changed jiu-jitsu because there's been so many athletes in the past that were just exceptional. Maybe they had a few good moves and they knew how to apply them. They had steps that they had done in the gym and in competition many, many, many times. So they had a clearly a, a clear, well-oiled pathway that they would go down. But they didn't have many. They didn't have yeah. like clear systems that they would teach in that regard. And a lot of times... I would watch even elite guys train, and it would be very open-ended. It would be very much just rolling and relaxing and flowing and all these different things, but they, they weren't relying on systems, and they weren't doing with one of the things that I think you and the squad do that's so important is putting yourself in disadvantageous positions over and over and over and over again, putting yourself in the worst place you can be. And Craig talked about this yesterday that when he would get into a bad position, he would freak out and he wouldn't know what to do and he would blow a lot of energy and it just would, would be a, a bad thing for him. But now, because of the training that you guys do, he's always in bad positions. So yeah. Every time he gets in a bad position, it's like, oh, I'm here every day. Um, I, I, I must say just on, on the side that uh, Craig's skill level is massively increased and um, uh, his defensive acumen is... Uh, so so much greater now than before. It's, it's very, very impressive to watch. Um, when Craig first came in, he had a great attacking game, um, but was uh, weak in defensive fundamentals, and that's no longer the case. He's a much more well-rounded athlete. It's very impressive to watch. That, that young man's got a huge future ahead of him. He's deeply, deeply impressive. Um, but uh, the other big thing, going back to the idea of systems, the, you talked about the idea of watching even elite athletes and uh, to use your phrase, the, the training was kind of open-ended. There seemed to be a lot, a lot of instinctual stuff going on. Guys were doing good moves, but it seemed to come out of spontaneous application of instinct rather than anything else. Um, I think what impressed many people about the squad when they first started training is that you saw not just one exceptional person doing well, but a group of people doing well and doing more or less the same thing. And that idea of successful replication, I think, is an important part of growing the sport of jiu-jitsu. It can't just be the case that we see an exceptional athlete and go, oh, well, he can do that because he's just, he's just exceptional. He's just gifted. Like, the moment you resign yourself to saying someone is just gifted, you're, as it were, that's a cop-out. You're, you're saying, like, you can't explain why they're good. And if you can't explain why they're good, you can't teach someone else to be good in the same way that they're good our goal as a coach is to be able to make everyone in the room good not just the Gordon Ryans and the Gary Tonans and the Craig Joneses but everyone should rise in level of course I don't expect them all to be as good as Craig Jones or Gordon Ryan okay that's that's not reasonable they most of them don't have the the time allocation to do that they're just busy with their careers their families etc but they should be able to go up noticeably and uh, my test, as it were, of the efficiency and efficacy of a training program is not to look at any one individual, but to look at the room overall and ask yourself, are they all performing in similar ways with similar success? First off, how good are the worst people in the room? The ones who have been there for five years, but they're the worst in the room. If they're absolutely terrible, that says something pretty negative about the training program. It means that whatever the good guys are doing isn't replicable. 
because the bad guys can't can't uh, can't get a heel on it. So I always look at the the weakest elements in the room, and then the other thing you look at is how many people can apply that program successfully. Is it something that only works for a certain body type? Or does it work for all body types? What is how universal is its success? Does it work for young people, old people? Um, and uh, I think that's what impressed people about the squad. You, you saw not just one person doing one thing well, and then another guy on the other side of the room doing his thing, which was completely different, and he was also doing pretty well, and no one else in the room was very good. That to me isn't really uh, indicative of a good training program so much as it is indicative of two outstanding individuals. And outstanding individuals tend to arise accidentally rather than deliberately. And as a result, I can't take any credit as a coach for their for their success. Secondly, I can't take whatever success they had and transmit it to a guy who's come to me for advice. I should be able to take someone who's athletically ungifted, works in a bank, has a family and can only train three times a week and still make him pretty damn good at jiu-jitsu. Um, I'll give you an example. One of my proudest moments as a coach was when I had a 42-year-old lawyer who no one's ever heard of go into a local grappling competition. Uh, he's married with kids, trains three times a week, and he submitted a heavyweight world champion jiu-jitsu black belt with a heel hook in 43 seconds. It's on video. Wow. Now, that to me is more indicative of the success of a training program than Gordon Ryan doing the same thing um, because this guy just has much less training time um, uh, and much less uh, invested in the sport, as it were. And that to me is, is that ability to replicate the success of the great people on a smaller scale among the people who aren't so great, that to me is indicative of a, of a good training program. And that's always what I strive towards. We're talking about physical freaks, how important physical freaks are to test the limits of your technique. And we're talking about Nicky Rod. In we particular. have one ultimate physical freak. <laughs> <laughs> you really do. I mean, he's an impressive individual. Um, and, and very unusually impressive because there's a lot of big guys, but there's not a lot of big guys that can move the way Nicky does, the way his hip flexibility comes into yeah, play when crazy. he's passing guard. I mean, and but you were telling me the story, and I would love it if you repeat it, about when he, uh, Gordon had his back. You, um, your, your listeners should be aware that Gordon Ryan is arguably one of the best back control experts of all time, if not the best. Um, I, I certainly have never seen anyone control a back without a gi at a level even close to Gordon Ryan. It's, it's truly extraordinary. Um, one day he was training with Nicky Rod, and that's always a tough match. It, uh, it's, it's the classic match of technique versus attributes. Okay, one guy has flawless technique, the other guy has insane physical attributes and I'll come back to the idea of technique versus attributes later because it's an important topic but um, uh, Gordon had Nicky Rod's back and with a fully locked body triangle and it's working for a strangle so Nicky Rod feels the strangle and you know, this is Gordon Ryan now anytime Gordon Ryan gets a fully locked body triangle traps one of your arms and gets his arm around your neck like the number of people who get out of that is can probably be counted on one hand in, in the entire world's population. Nicky Rod shrugs his shoulders and slips inside the strangle, reaches back and grabs 
Gordon Ryan's head. At that moment, sorry, Gordon Ryan goes to adjust his body triangle, and for one infinitesimal part of a second, his body triangle is unlocked. Nicky Rod just did a full backward roll into what can only be described as a backflip and up into standing position and left Gordon lying on the ground underneath him in a kind of a weird north-south kind of situation. And Gordon Ryan just sits up, doesn't look at Nicky Rod, looks at me and goes, so what the fuck do I do about that? (laughs) (laughs) I just look at him really, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I ran out of ideas. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the coach, and I don't know what the fuck to say. I'm like, uh, yeah, he's a freak. How many people can even do that? I, I, I didn't even know it was physically possible I until I saw it with my own eyes. someone grabbing a head and then springing backwards. <laughs> like, it doesn't even make sense. That's so escape. crazy. And um, I, I remember just thinking, like, my God, this is insane. Um, but uh, going back to uh, attributes and techniques, whenever you go to... Uh, to into a bout against an opponent. Ultimately, what you're trying to defeat is a mix of your opponent's skills and his attributes. Okay, and everyone carries with them their physical attributes, their mental attributes, and their skills. And your potential in a bout against another human being is measured by those two things: what are your attributes, what level do they operate at, and what is your skill set okay um and of course they are they are linked i have a lot of knowledge but i have a crippled body and so that adversely affects my skills there's certain i i know how to do many things that i simply can't do because my body won't let me do them it's just something i can't do so uh skills and attributes are related the better your attributes generally uh, let me rephrase that the better your physical attributes generally the better your skills. You'll learn skills more easily if you're strong, flexible, fast. Okay, They generally come more easy to you that way. Um, but there's also mental attributes. And these are things like problem-solving ability, uh, memory, um, uh, speed of decision-making, confidence, things like this. And ultimately, we're a mix between our attributes, which are divided into physical and mental. And obviously, there's some overlap between those two. And, uh, and, our, and our skills, which are learned over time. Now, as a coach, there's only so much you can do with regards attributes. There's things you can do. You can improve someone's confidence. You can uh, improve their speed of decision-making. You, there's things you can do. But you can have less effect on an attributes. They are more hardwired into you as a person through your DNA. But skills I can work on. Those I can improve significantly. So most of my time is built up around skill development. Um, but it's undeniable that you can have someone who has lesser skills than you, but if their attributes are at a certain level where they are so far superior to yours that no amount of skill will make up for it. Okay. Um, there's a reason why there's weight divisions in jiu-jitsu. There's a reason why there's sex divisions in jiu-jitsu. Because you could have someone who conceivably was an immensely talented uh, black belt lightweight or female who took on a reasonably talented blue belt heavyweight and could easily lose the match just because there's 
you just you had better skills, but they weren't enough to overtake those attributes. And so that clash between skills and attributes is the is the great clash in martial arts. Martial arts tend to appeal most to people who figure low on the attribute spectrum, people who aren't very confident, who aren't very big, who aren't very strong. And so they use skill as a crutch to overcome attributes. Things get really freaky when you get someone who is strong in both attributes, both mental and physical, and skills. That's when you see the super athletes. And that's the potential for a guy like Nicky Rod. That's the potential. So he's he's really like but at the starting remember, blocks in a way. He is, he is. But always remember that attributes are much wider in nature than most people give them credit for. Most people tend to focus on speed, explosivity, endurance, flexibility. But always remember the mental attributes too. And I'm not just talking about confidence. Nicky Rod's the most confident person in the world. But there's also things like discipline, mental, uh, ability to retain information, ability to make decisions under pressure. And these are immensely important and don't get talked about very much. Okay, so um, you can be very strong in attributes in some areas and quite deficient in others. And that will be either a positive or negative for your 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 uh, development as an athlete, so it's not as simple as all oh, this guy's physically a, a god. Okay, well maybe, but um, what about, uh, for example, um, Gordon Ryan on the attribute level is he has good isometric strength, uh, he has poor flexibility, uh, he has shockingly poor speed. His physical speed is it's unimpressive to be honest. Um, uh, he has excellent endurance, at least before he had his stomach problems. But uh, if he's operating normally, his, his endurance is excellent. But you see he's quite deficient in some areas. But then you go to the mental route, his confidence is off the charts. His ability to retain information, one of the best I ever saw. His ability to make decisions under stress, I think, top three I ever saw. Okay, so... It's people talk about attributes, but it's it's more nuanced than most people think. Don't forget some of the attributes that never get mentioned, particularly things like problem solving, making decisions under stress. These have immense consequences for an athlete, and they compound. Yes. That's what's fascinating. Yeah. And the ultimate goal is getting to the finish line. Yes, like who gets to the fin? Who wins? Yeah, who manages the yes. interaction of those attributes and skills the best gets over the finish line first. Yeah, and it's a complicated story. That was an interesting thing you said earlier, Joe. We we um, we uh, jumped over it more quickly than perhaps we should have. You made a fascinating point about the idea that it's uh, it's a, it's about there is a finish line, and that's agreed upon the knockout, the submission. But who gets over there is a complicated story, and you gave a, a nice rendition of, of just how complex it is in terms of the various elements that you, you have to bring together. But ultimately, it comes down to skills and attributes. It's fascinating to me that there's that the, the variety of different athletes, that they vary so much, and that you rarely have, like as we were talking about Canelo Alvarez earlier, you rarely have the athlete that has everything that has the discipline, has the physical attributes, has the mental understanding of how to win, the, the ability to cross that finish line, but also with those physical attributes, didn't neglect technique mm. at all and developed the same sort of ability that a, a guy like Floyd Mayweather, who doesn't really have that kind of power, has. 
if if you can impart that into a guy like Nicky and give him all the attributes that Gordon has. And understand also, Joe, that some of the attributes and skills can conflict with each other. Okay, so for example, mm. if, if you have immense reservoirs of strength, flexibility, and speed, you might not feel any need to learn technique. You might not need it. It's strong, fast, flexible. And so it can actually hinder your skill development. It's a tricky thing mm. to develop this ultimate athlete who is strong in all of them. Think about how few times coaches generate truly great athletes. Let's look at an example of a, a coach who I really look up to a lot, Customato. He started coaching in the mid-1940s, I believe, and finished pretty much with his death in the 1980s, mid-1980s. He coached all the way through. How many athletes did he produce in that time? Jose Torres, Floyd Patterson, uh, Kevin Rooney to a certain extent. Uh, great athletes. Yeah, he's a good athlete. Yeah, better I, I trainer. Think, I think got knocked out by yeah, Alexis Arguello. Yeah, right? that was a fascinating yeah. match. Uh, amazing knockout, by the way. Yeah, uh, uh, but Mike Tyson was the yeah, prodigy. I, I think. I think ninety-nine percent of your listeners will agree with us if we just said, okay, Jose Torres was a, a very, very good light heavyweight. Light heavyweight champion. Yeah. Uh, Floyd Patterson is even a level above that. Undersized, like he, un heavyweight, undersized heavyweight. But, fought but some of the greats, great but very, very. Uh, uh, like one of one of the one of the greats of the 1960s for sure, and of course one Mike Tyson, who is incontestably in the top three of all time. All time, like there's no in one, his prime. Yeah. People want to judge him based on the later aspects of his, his career when he had lost motivation and he was partying and yeah. recklessness. I judge him on the Mike Tyson that knocked out Marvis Frazier, the Mike Tyson that stopped Larry Holmes. In my opinion. He's like top two or three. I, of all I, time. I totally agree with you. And yeah. even when he, even at the end of his career, when he was falling apart, he was still very impressive. Yeah, still. Like, even his fight with Lennox Lewis. I mean, yeah. he, he was barely trained at that point. It was still a very competitive fight. Yeah. Like, um, so so let's say Customato, in the course of almost forty years of training, produced one truly great, all-time great champion and two very good champions. That's three people. In 40 years of work. Out of how many athletes? How many? Hundreds, I'm sure. Hundreds and hundreds. Okay. In my experience, um, uh, I teach literally hundreds of people uh, in, in, in a given month. In New York City, I, I, my average class size on a Monday afternoon was like 100 to 120 people. That's Monday afternoon, and I teach seven days a week. Um, and yet, how many came out as... as great grappling champions or mixed martial arts Would champions five or six yeah so the, the numbers are small yeah like in order for someone to go into that uber realm of athletes and and i'm talking about coaches who bring them up okay because that's a very different thing okay you can there's plenty of coaches who aren't really coaches they're trainers they mm. they bring in athletes who are already world champions or already very very good and then they just train them for competition that's a that's a different thing you, at that point you're recruiting people and training recruits um customato took mike tyson from age 13 um uh he took in jose torres as, as a, a young developing olympic boxer i believe jose torres won the silver medal in 50, uh, 56 olympics i had to check that um but uh floyd patterson was the youngest 
heavyweight champion of all time when he won the title. So he started with these guys, and he he really was a coach who brought them up from youth into world championship status. So he he's like a genuine coach and mentor, um, and yet three people in a forty year career um, to to make someone into that uber championship status a lot of things have to fall into place and i think you raised a very deep point joe that man the numbers of people who can get that to happen it's, very small it's very very small the, the the number of athletes that can figure their way through the maze and not lose motivation not change course and, and joe there's so many arbitrary things we talked about arbitrary before about how you walked into a taekwondo school and just based on the fact that you went in at 7 p.m instead of 7 10 p.m turned your life around i mean think about how many things that can go wrong i've had students that were enormously talented enormously talented could have been a gordon ryan but they met a woman and fell in love got married okay now that's a wonderful thing I, i'm happy that they, they did that but just anything can happen in yep. your life uh, you can be in a car accident yep. I mean, life is very very arbitrary there's so many things that can derail you and it's a it's a delicate delicate pro process to get someone to that level and there's a there's ten thousand things that can go wrong on any given day that could derail the program it's hard enough just to balance the attributes and and skills over time and, and keep someone there long enough to to develop those skills and then there's intercepting forces from outside that could just derail everything that's why we love when someone does come along like an israel adesanya it's an incredible it just, thing it just becomes it's that so guy. rare it's, yeah, it's so diamond. rare yeah it's but it's what makes a sport so fun hmm. because it's so hard to do because it's such a crazy journey to yeah. get to become a champion in any discipline I mean, whatever. all value in life is based around scarcity and there's nothing more scarce than the factors involved in getting to the top of combat sports it's, yeah as you say there's just so many things that that are required to get there and so many things that could stop you and become a roadblock to the path that when it happens it's something magic i'm, I'm sure joe I, I i'm sure you are similar to me that you can you can literally cast your mind back over 30 years and remember Mike Tyson fights from the 1980s, where you were, where you saw them. I know sure. I can. I remember knowing that he lost to Buster Douglas, watching it after the fact and still thinking he was going to win. <laughs> <laughs> you got to understand, like, that's how dominant Mike Tyson was. I remember I was working as a bouncer and I came home and uh, it was a uh, very, very late night. And I was coming home and I, I saw a copy of the New York Times with the, the, the news that Mike Tyson had lost in Japan. And I remember just, wow. like, just disbelief, like, oh, that, it's not possible. And um, because it, it was just anyone who grew up in the 1980s watching it, it was just like, this guy was literally the greatest fighter of all time. And um, but in, it was such a shocking event. What people don't even really understand is there was such a lull in the heavyweight division before him, which made his ascension so much more True. spectacular. True. Because there was the guys like Pinkle and Thomas and, and Tony Tubbs, and there was yeah. these champions that, you know, with all due respect, nobody gave a fuck about. They just uh, they all, weren't excited. All, all the action in the 1980s was between the four greats. Uh, Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns, Tommy Hearns Sugar Ray, Leonard, Sugar Ray and, yeah. um, uh, and Marvin Hagler. Hagler. And yeah. I, I guess you, uh, uh, you could also add the, um, the Jamaican fellow, the body snatcher. 
He was Mike also, McCallum. Yeah, Mike McCallum. He was also and then there was Donald Curry and yeah. Milton McCrory. It was incredible this, yeah. time. Oh, it was amazing incredible. time. Amazing but the heavyweights time. were weak. Yes. And, and you went from Muhammad Ali, who uh, had taken the heavyweight uh, division to such uh, – like, like it became the most important thing in sports in the 1970s. Then you, the 80s was this huge, uh, sorry, the late 70s to the mid 80s, it was this huge dip in the heavyweight division. All the attention went on the, the welterweights, and then suddenly Mike Tyson came in. And, well, there was a part of that was that people resented Larry Holmes for beating up yeah. Muhammad Ali, which is very unfortunate because I think Larry Holmes is one of the most underappreciated heavyweights yeah. of all time. Yeah. Because in his prime, he was amazing. He was so good. And he had one of the best jabs yes. in the history of the sport. Yeah, I mean Larry. I mean, even when he fought Mike Tyson, yeah, uh, that second round, yeah, he, came out jabbing him. It was competitive. Yeah, um, uh, you know, it's an odd thing talking about jab and Mike Tyson. Isn't it remarkable to think Tyson was so short for a heavyweight? Was he five foot ten? And the mm -hmm. average height of his opponents was like six foot two, six mm -hmm. foot three, and yet he was never out jabbed. Yeah. I guess that's incredible. It is I mean, incredible. There's a reason why they call it reach advantage in boxing, because it really mm -hmm. is an advantage. And yet he was able to completely nullify people's jabs, including very good exponents of the jab. The, the Holmes fight, though, made me wonder, like, what would have been like if Larry and him had fought in Larry's prime? Yeah. yeah. Because Larry was yeah. catching him quite yeah. a bit with the jab. But just it was this immense firepower advantage that Mike Tyson had. And when he did club him that, with that one right hand, you see Larry's legs give out and he went down and he he's trying to shake courage. off the cobwebs. Yeah. 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 But you realize, like, it's just yeah. a, he's a different species. Yeah. He was just, he was so superior. In his prime, I mean, what, the way he would wreck people was like, they were executions. Yeah. It's also crazy to think back then that it just shows you how far martial arts have come, that at that time, Incontestably, when you talked about the best fighter in the world, you meant the best boxer in the world. Mm. But nowadays, no one would say no one the, the best boxer in the world is the best fighter in the world. Yeah, like the, the whole scene has shifted. Right. There's all this talk about Francis Ngannou and Tyson Fury fighting. There's no talk about them fighting inside the octagon. Yeah. There's not a question in anybody's mind yeah. how that fight would go down. Yeah. I mean, that would be. It would be kind of fun to see Francis hit a takedown. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he would. I think he'd just kick the shit out of his yeah, legs. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Would, yeah. And yeah. just eventually yeah. get him to the point where he could barely walk. Yeah. Just yeah. a couple calf kicks and yeah. that'd I mean, be a that, wrap. There's been so many cases where talented boxers took on uh, kickboxers. Sometimes it goes the boxer's way. There's, there's some notable examples, but leg kicks. It's the only time I can think of it ever going a boxer's way is Shannon Briggs. Yeah, but Shannon Briggs uh, against uh, Tom Erickson, but Tom Erickson was really a wrestler. Yeah, it yeah. was he had good leg kicks and he landed a few hard ones, but Shannon was like so superior as yeah. a boxer. But uh, Vince Phillips when he fought Masato, that's a good example. Um, they they had some excellent demonstrations out of Japan in the K1 where they had some. Uh, uh, there w there was one notable exception though. There was a South African boxer who did very well against uh, Franz Botha. Yes, yes. Yeah. And he on, on yes. he went on to fight Tyson. Yes, uh, it was yeah. actually a pretty competitive fight until he got yeah. knocked into uh, the next uh, century. Well, Botha went to K1 after he was uh, a heavyweight boxer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But he did he did pretty well. Did pretty well. Yeah. 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 Well, he was just a really tough guy. You know, there was a few of those guys that were capable. You know, it's just, but the difference between boxing and kickboxing at that level is, you know, if Franz Botha had to fight Ernesto Hoost mm. or someone like that, he'd yeah. get lit up. 
You know, there's just there's levels to all that. But but even Ernesto Hoos lost to Bob Sapp. Yep, that was it was just result. a pharmacological yeah. experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Sapp was the freak of all freaks. People don't but they, you don't know if you don't know if you never saw him fight when he was 375 pounds with abs. That's insane. That's he amazing. was so big. It's easy to rattle off the, the numbers, 375 pounds, until you stood in front of someone who's 375 pounds. Dude, I met him in Vegas. He was so big. Yeah. He was it, so big. It was pre- it, just <laughs> preposterous. Just preposterous. Yeah. Now, I remember um, uh, people don't understand what it's like to be hit by something. There he like is. <laughs> There's Bob Sapp in his prime, walking out with a robe with feathers on the top of it. And by the way, Japan loved him. Yes, yeah. I don't know what went wrong. I don't know all the exact specifics, but something went wrong with the deal with ne- negotiating. Look at the size of him. My God. Something went wrong with negotiations and uh, with the, the, the people that ran K1. And there was a time where this is when he fought Mirko Krokop. And Mirko Krokop fucked him up. Crushed him. Yeah. Well, Mirko was an interesting example because, you know, we talk about attributes, right? Mirko was never the very best kickboxer in the world. He was very elite. But what he had over a lot of the best guys was the ability to close the distance very quickly and to strike very fast. And uh, guys that didn't have that kind of style, like a good example is Peter Arts. Peter Arts is, uh, he was much more of a technique based. He wasn't nearly as fast, didn't have the same kind of one punch, one punch knockout power that Mirko did and never went into MMA. Or if he did, I don't, I'm not aware of it. Um, same with Ernesto Hoos. I don't think those guys would have been as successful. Yeah. But Mirko had this insane ability to explode. He could stay on the outside, just pop! And that's what he did with Bob Sapp. He caught him with a straight left hand and fractured his eye socket. Yeah, no, he had devastating um, striking with the rear side of his body, both hand and leg. Yes. And uh, as you say, an ability just to close it. In that, yeah, in that was second. it. There it is right there. He popped him in the eye and, and dropped him. And Mirko just had that one punch, one kick speed and, and power that made him, it, it directly applied to MMA in a way yeah. that other fighters didn't. Yeah. And, you know, other guys who were more technique-based, who would set things up and more, you know, it would take time to cook their opponent. In kickboxing, when if those guys tried to get into MMA, they just weren't as successful. Just you needed something to get guys off you. Yeah, I, um, I agree with you with um, uh, the, uh, the lumberjack, Peter Ertz. Uh, if you look at his knockouts, a significant percentage of them come from some kind of clinch break, where he's clinching people, pushes them off, and on the separation, he would kick over the shoulder and knock mm-hmm. them out. Um, but uh, uh, if he was clinching people like that in MMA, he would have been taken down immediately, right. so it wouldn't have worked. Whereas Mirko had that ability to stay out, stay out, stay out, and then bam, and, yeah. and hit, and it was done. It is, it's just, it's so fascinating how different people's bodies work. And how there are guys like BJ Penn who had this insane flexibility and dexterity to his legs and would control guys. And one of the things about BJ Penn that I always felt, thought very interesting, because it applies to the way you teach jujitsu, is that BJ would wrestle with his legs. Yes. His legs were such a significant part of his game. And there was many guys, for whatever reason, men generally turn, tend to try to clinch things and do things and do everything with your arms. But BJ figured out like insane leg flexibility and dexterity. I know he practiced it too, because he had a really interesting uh, workout regimen that he would do with bands. He would have these uh, these uh, rubber bands, and he would use them in, in in flexibility training. 
and he would like have these bands like pull his feet in certain directions he would resist against them and he Interesting. Had, yeah I, I never watched him do it but someone who trained with him talked to me about it the way he would uh, like use these these uh, resistance bands specifically for working on his flexibility and strength in unusual positions. Fascinating. Um, If you look at BJ, um, one of the most remarkable factors about his career is his speed of learning. Like, uh, if I remember correctly, he got his black belt in a shockingly short period of time. And won the Mundials. And won Mundials. So, um, and it, that was at a time when uh, no one from America was even thinking about winning Monday else. He just came out, bang, and, uh, and won. And uh, I've always claimed that the people who learn the fastest in jiu-jitsu are those who learn to wrestle with their legs as early as possible. Um, as you correctly point out, most human beings have a, a natural tendency to attack every problem with their hands and arms. Where everything we do in our life is mostly working with your arms and hands. Um, And so when we fight, we do exactly the same thing. And your hands and arms are only a tiny fraction of your overall strength. If I asked you, Joe, to walk across this room, that would be the easiest assignment I could ever give you. But if I asked you to walk across this room in a full handstand, even if you had the flexibility and, and skill for it, it would still be a workout. Okay, um, our arms are massively weaker and uh, have massively less endurance than our legs do. And so when you can get people to start working with their legs as early as possible in their development, that's when you see people getting good at jiu-jitsu very, very quickly. Um, and so as a coach, if I'm in charge of a beginner's program, I'm mostly known as a coach of people who are already good but uh, I actually love to teach beginners more than anyone almost everything they do is learning to use exclusively their legs and their early development now this is very frustrating for a lot of people because you feel clumsy as hell and athletes who are strong with their arms suddenly have to use their legs they feel helpless and and uncoordinated and foolish Uh, but if they can get over that they progress very very quickly we were talking earlier, uh, I was showing you a video of Jeremiah Vance, mm. who's uh, one of Eddie Bravo's black belts. Very impressive. He has like BJ Penn level flexibility. Insane dexterity. And his jiu-jitsu game from the bottom is so shocking to people because his ability to just, without using his hands at all, move his feet in position across people's, like in a go-go plata yes. or omoplata position. It's just so, so much dexterity, so flexible. That having someone, we were talking about like a guy like Nicky Rod, who's got that kind of freak athleticism. I, I would, I'm, I'm, there's, it's got to be possible to have a guy who's got that kind of freak athleticism as a heavyweight, and and that kind of dexterity. I mean, it doesn't, it's not mutually exclusive to be large and also. I was telling you about this guy that works out at my gym. That's who's correct. A, he's like six three, this and yet has similar flexibility, ridiculous flexibility and ridiculous dexterity. The way this guy can move his body. And I, you know, I see him working out. I almost want to tell him, like, you're wasting your time. You need to learn some martial arts. <laughs> like, all this working out you're doing is great, but you're not, you're not applying it to anything. Like, you could be amazing. Like, break dancers are something that we figured out at 10th Planet um, with uh, Richie Martinez and uh, Gio Martinez. They were uh, break dancers. And we never thought of break dancing as being a, a way into martial arts. I thought of wrestling, I had thought of gymnastics, and we talked about Mark Schultz had been a gymnast. 
But these break dancers have crazy dexterity. Yes. Amazing ability to move their body. Richie can put one hand on the ground and like put one hand up in the air and do a full lotus with his legs. Uh, wild shit and you watch them move around and spin on their head and all that kind of stuff and the ability just to control their body it's so applicable to jujitsu and Richie's another one who has this incredible leg dexterity amazing flexibility but this all these different tools that when applied to jujitsu make for a really difficult guy to deal with yeah um Ultimately, your your goal in jiu-jitsu is as much as humanly possible to get to create situations where you're using your legs to wrestle against an opponent's arms and upper body. If you can make your lower body fight his upper body, you can beat bigger people than yourself and, and do it uh, uh, quite often. Um, always understand the, the fundamental features of the human body, and one of those features is the massive discrepancy between the upper body and the lower body. Humans are quite pathetically weak in the upper body and surprisingly strong in the lower body. Interestingly, the difference in strength between men and women is very dramatic in the upper body, but much narrower in the lower body. Um, and so if you're going to beat bigger, stronger people, the whole key is to match your legs against their arms, your lower body versus their upper body. And as much as possible, that's what I try to do in in, uh, in my coaching and getting students thinking in terms of wrestling with their legs against their opponent's upper body is one of the best ways you can do that. So a lot of the early training is in the use of triangles where you're using your legs to strangle. Uh, you're using your legs in a way which leads directly into submission. Your legs versus their upper body. Your legs expressly against their head and one of their arms. Um, uh, when you get students thinking in those terms, legs versus arms, that's when they start making very fast progress. How much time, if any, do you guys spend on flexibility? Actually, um, I don't coach uh, physical training at all among my students. Uh, we never have like a, a class where we work on flexibility. We never have a class where we work on strength. Um, I've always believed that athletes will tend to find physical programs that suit their own personality and body type best. If you look at physical training uh, outside of the gym, I've never seen a convincing study that shows that one program is definitively better than another, that it gets sports performance in jiu-jitsu significantly better results than another program. I've seen people get excellent results with uh, Olympic lifting. I've seen people get excellent results with kettlebells. I've seen excellent pe uh, results out of just body weight training. I've seen some people just do like basic bodybuilding and do just fine. Um, never has there been a situation where I saw a guy do a given strength program where he got noticeably better at the sport than people who didn't do it. I've never seen any strong evidence of this. Um, similarly with diet, I've never seen anyone change their diet and their sports performance increase. And so I don't coach these things because I've never seen anyone engage in them and just get noticeably better. But I can teach someone technique and then two weeks later they're beating people they couldn't beat two weeks ago. This, this I can coach. Um, so what I do is I just tell my students, uh, uh, 
find some kind of athletic program. I do think it's important to work on your strength. I do think it's important to work on your flexibility. But find something you like. Some guys like yoga. Some guys like PNF stretching. Some guys, everyone finds their own their own ground. And a big part of that is self-discovery. You learn a lot about your body by working on your own attributes. And it's important that judo players learn to discover the strengths and weaknesses of their own body. What are you good at? What are you not good at? And start tying that into the technique that I show you. I can coach people all day on technique, and I'm very, very confident that when I do that, I can make them, I can improve their sports performance. But I've, as I said, I've never seen reputable studies which conclusively show that one method of gaining strength definitively gets better sport uh, results in, in grappling. Is this because there are no methods that are better, or is this because no one has really taken the same sort of comprehensive approach to training athletes specifically for jiu-jitsu and competition the way you have doing it with technique. So That's a fascinating question. Think about if someone had the same all-in approach that you have to training your athletes in jiu-jitsu, but did that training them in physical culture, mm. training them in stretching, range of motion, uh, in, endurance training, the Tabata intervals, all these different methods that we know for a fact to be beneficial to athletes. And we're talking about like, you know, you know oftentimes the difference between athletes is so small with what makes the winner versus the loser. Like it might be just the ability to push at that one moment when the other athlete is tired. It might be a better understanding of positions to be able to be able to push the the pace of technique where the other person can't keep up with the rhythm. There's so many variables. Yes. One of them you're covering with jujitsu and technique, but when you're talking about Gordon Ryan, say being not very flexible, like imagine if Gordon Ryan had the kind of leg dexterity that Jeremiah Vance does. That's not physically impossible. Like Jeremiah, if you met him, he's a regular guy. You know, BJ Penn's regular person. You see him, he's not a he's not a freak. I mean, he's freakishly talented. But imagine if you take someone who I mean, we're talking about uh, Canelo Alvarez having this incredible power, but also having this amazing uh, discipline in terms of his ability to recognize that that power is not everything boxing and learning all the technique and learning how to be dis defensively responsible, learning all the different strategies in terms of fainting and movement. There's so many different things to learn in jiu-jitsu, but if you could learn all those things and have the most optimized physical training, it just think, seems to me to make sense that that would take things to another level. That's, that's a fascinating uh, uh, argument you've raised, Joe. Let me try and uh, I, I believe I can give you an answer as to why I don't coach these things. Well, I would make it makes sense that you wouldn't, um, because I don't know how the fuck you do what you do already. Uh, with regards to the the question, would this make a difference? There's been no study on it, so I I don't like to teach in areas where I just don't have good evidence for giving an opinion, and so. Uh, it would be dishonest of me to, to st suddenly start claiming this strength program is better than this one. I, I, just, right. I don't have evidence for it. If I had evidence and there was a difference, I would go with that method. Um, what, you asked a very interesting question in between that question, though. You asked something very interesting indeed. You said, well, what if you took Gordon Ryan and you just made him more flexible? He, wouldn't he be better than he is now? Yeah, he'd be better in some things, but you've got to ask yourself, that comes at a price of 
now you're investing in that form of training. That means you've got to you've got to stop doing other forms of training. There's only stretching, though. Mm, uh, let, let me let me go further with my explanation. There's things that I can do with technique, which will improve your sports performance much more dramatically in a given time frame than any investment you could do in terms of of attributes. Let's look at a concrete example, because otherwise it's going to just sound too vague. Um, George St. Pierre versus BJ Penn. BJ Penn had some of the most perfect jujitsu flexibility I've ever seen in my career. Like he had, there's different kinds of flexibility, but the flexibility he had was literally custom made for the for the application of jujitsu technique, especially from bottom position, but also from back position as well. George St. Pierre has good linear flexibility. He's got good front splits, side splits, good for kicking, but he has quite poor jiu-jitsu flexibility for bringing your knees wide and feet in for guard position. Okay, So he has a good kind of flexibility for standing striking, but not a good flexibility for guard play. When George went to fight BJ, everyone said to me, this is the second fight they'd already fought one time. When he went to fight the second time, they were, that was the mature George St. Pierre. When they first fought George, I believe it was only a blue or purple belt and uh, they'd had a close fight and the second time uh, George was a black belt and um, uh, much more mature phase of his career and the discussion was well, well how do you want to fight him and in the first fight everyone had said uh, you can't go to the ground with BJ he's a, he's a world champion in jiu-jitsu if you go to the ground it's suicide and I was the lone voice saying no George should go to the ground with him take him down and uh BJ's very talented, but he's never actually submitted someone from bottom position. And as long as BJ doesn't get on your back or get top position, George is going to be just fine. The best part of George's game is positional advance or staying inside someone's guard and striking from those positions. And that's how ultimately George won the fight. George lost the standing game in the, in the first round. BJ easily won the first round. And George won the next two rounds, largely with takedowns and, and ground and pound on the floor. So um, when the second fight came, I was an advocate of the ground again. This time, people were willing to listen based on what they'd seen the first time. But I wanted to go further. I said, not only are you going to take him down to the ground, you're going to pass his guard. And everyone just laughed. They were like, BJ's literally never had his guard passed in competition, either judicial or MMA. He's got one of the best guards in the world. You're never going to pass his guard. And they, they all gave the same reason. He's too flexible. Literally, this is a guy who, you try any guard pass, he can just take his foot and without even touching his foot, just thread it back in and, and go into place. And I agreed he was the most uh, flexible jiu-jitsu athlete I'd seen at that point in my career. And uh, I also agreed that he'd had superb guard retention skills as a result of that. But I was always... Uh, I was also convinced that if you played a game where you shut down the mobility of his head and hips, you would render the flexibility inoperable. You wouldn't be able to use it. And famously, George passed BJ's guard seven times in slightly more than 10 minutes in that fight. Now, you might argue, well, some of that was because BJ took a heavy hit early in the fight, and some of it because BJ got tired towards the end of the fight. Yes, this is all true, but the fact remains a man who'd never had his guard passed ever in competition suddenly had his guard passed seven times by a guy who is not even in the same realm of flexibility for jiu-jitsu as he did. What made the difference? 
would the smart thing have been to train George St. Pierre and BJ Penn style flexibility in the time available? No. He got much better results, not by trying to change his own body attributes, but rather by the use of technique to shut down the attributes of his opponent. You get much more mileage out of shutting down the other guy's attributes than you do trying to, to build your own attributes. Your own attributes don't change that much. But your ability to shut down someone else's attributes can be changed massively through the application of technique in very short periods of time. And so when it comes time to invest training time, because we all have limited time, we all have limited energy, and the question is always, how can I maximize my use of time and energy in my training program? I've always pushed towards the idea of favor technique and skill, which shut down the other guy's attributes more than try to change your own physical attributes. Most certainly, I agree with you. But I do think that you're talking about skills that aren't mutually exclusive, and I think that if you do stretch after training, you can still do it even if you're training just as hard. It's a matter of doing it or not doing it. It doesn't take away anything from you. It doesn't exhaust you. It doesn't blow you out. This is all correct, but now you're going to have to presumably use that form of newfound flexibility that you have and start to develop new techniques out of those. Why not just work with techniques that suit the attributes you already have and invest all of your training time in that. It's pretty easy to shut down the other guy's attributes with technique. So why not just stick with what you're already very, very strong at? These are your, these are the attributes you have. They are paired with a certain skill set which expresses those attributes best. Why bother investing large amounts of time and another set of attributes? Then you have to learn a whole new set of skills appropriate for those attributes. Now you're you're juggling whole new skill sets at a time when you're competing and you've got a competition coming up in one month. You're not going to be able to bring those in in that time period. So you see, I see what you're as, as, as the body changes, you're going to have to change the techniques. Technical change takes a long time. Learning a new technique and applying it at world championship level is a big deal. It might take you six months to a year. So do you think that this same, what you're saying, is because Gordon is at a world championship level, would you have that same approach to someone who's literally at day one? No. At day one, you would say? No, because they, at that point, they're an open book, and you can write the whole narrative from the beginning. Right. So for Gordon, he's too far down the path. Yeah. And at, at, at this point, it's no longer worth the investment in time to completely restructure his game, which is already winning, and especially given the fact that he's in a busy competition schedule where he has to perform not three years from now, but next month. Right, right. Um, we were talking before about ways to well and the um, the treatment that they're going to provide Gordon and hopefully d deal with his stomach issue. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, ways to well is a company and bought. They're actually the people that bought me the sign behind me. It was a gift to me coming here, so that signs from them. Um, thank you, Brigham. And uh, what they want to do is using stem cells and BPC one five seven. Apparently, there are some papers that have been published on uh, different um, methods. Uh, of dealing with uh, the stomach issues using those. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I I truly hope they can yeah, succeed. I hope so too. Um, tell it, me what it's like, because he's described it, but tell me what it's like as an outsider. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the most frustrating things I've experienced as a coach. Um, George also had stomach issues, but uh, his was an ulcerative colitis. It's a, a different kind of thing. But um, in in Gordon's case. Uh, 
he has extreme nausea and stomach pain, which began after he took an antibiotic course in response to a staph infection. Now, Gordon tends to think that the relationship between the antibiotics and his current illness is causal. But of course, it could also just be a correlation. There's no, it's not guaranteed that the antibiotics cause this problem. There's plenty of other people who've been on the same wide spectrum antibiotics as he took and they never had stomach issues. It's possible, but it's not certain. The truth is no one really knows definitively what is causing it. He's had numerous tests. Um, some of those tests point in certain directions. The, the, uh, the treatments that he had have uh, either not worked at all or only worked for a very short period of time and then the whole thing has relapsed. Over the three to three and a half years that he's had it, it's gotten worse over time and appears to be getting worse as we speak. Gordon won two, sorry, four ADCC medals with this problem in place and uh, numerous matches in between and yet every training session was a battle and I've watched Gordon's personality change as he struggled with this. He used to be a very light-hearted happy-go-lucky kid who would come into class and laugh and talk and and that's gone. He's um, uh, he's a, a person who's more or less permanently in pain and nausea and inevitably that that has definite effects on your personality. He's, he's at times deeply unhappy and distressed. Um, it's, it's incredibly sad to be around someone who you care about deeply and, and see this kind of thing occurring at such a young age. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it's even more uh, distressing to see that there's cycles of hope where a treatment seems to work and then fails. Uh, there was one brief period for like one month where he was fighting a very talented uh, Brazilian grappler called Mateus Denise, who's um, an ADCC champion. And for like one month before that fight, there was a, uh, a period where the symptoms lifted and it was like a cloud just came off Gordon Ryan and he immediately started eating again, gained weight, training was easy. He came out, had one of the best matches of his career and then a week afterwards just came right back. And that that down of, of, of a, a period of hope where it seemed like things were going to improve and go back to normal and then to see him go back into a relapse was just, it was hard to watch. And there was nothing that correlated with that relapse? No, completely random. And um, doctors couldn't explain it. And uh, so it, it's it's truly sad to, to watch. And Gordon struggled through all of this uh, quietly. And, and uh, I don't use the word heroically very lightly, but there, there was like a quiet kind of heroism about it where he just said, I've got to perform, I've got to prove that what we do works and I've got to get out there and, and do this. And he went through camps where, dude, that guy was suffering, just coming in and just miserable. And um, and yet he always stuck to, the, stuck to it and went out and performed and, and won and never, he hated to talk about it publicly because he saw it, he didn't want to use it as an excuse. And um, uh, he thinks excuses are weakness and, and won't tolerate them. And, um, uh, and, I have to say, in the last couple of months, for the first time, 
even Gordon's stoicism has started to break down. And for the first time, you're seeing even in the gym, he can't finish workouts. Like I, it, as bad as it was before, it never got to that point. And we're now at a point where Gordon sometimes finishes, usually doesn't. And there's certain uh, elements of training, um, standing, wrestling, scrimmaging, uh, he can't do. And um, it's it's sad. And uh, I, I truly hope that uh, he can fight his way through this. At this point, I'm afraid to say that the only thing that could turn it around is either a successful medical intervention, some treatment that we didn't know about. I'm, I'm hoping above hope that your, your medical friends can help. Um, but at this point, it's not looking good, to be honest with you. Um, there would have to be either a successful medical intervention or it could be one of those things that passes with time. Uh, what you notice with the human body, particularly the stomach, which is so incredibly complex and unknown, anytime you have a situation which just seems to arise without a clear-cut cause, these things sometimes come and go. And sometimes these things can be a long-term problem which goes away with time. And um, so those are really the only two ways I see this being resolved. Either this is a successful medical intervention or time plays a role and eventually the condition just improves by itself over time. Uh, if Gordon couldn't compete again for the future, I think that would be uh, a tragedy for the jiu-jitsu world because he's essentially not even at his peak yet. He's only 25 years old. I don't believe Gordon will hit his peak until his early 30s. Um, so to lose someone of that magnitude who plays such a, a pivotal role in the technical development of jiu-jitsu would be an absolute tragedy for the sport. Um, I, I think about it in terms of worst-case scenarios and best-case scenarios. Best-case scenario, either your medical friends or some other doctor can find a successful intervention uh, or it resolves itself uh, by, on, on its own and Gordon comes back to compete and everything's good. In a worst-case scenario where Gordon cannot compete, um, I would do my utmost to rebrand Gordon as the former greatest athlete in no-gi competition and to the greatest coach of all time. I take heart from the fact that if you look at the four greatest American wrestlers of all time, Dan Gable, John Smith, Cale Sanderson, and Jordan Burroughs, all of them are superb coaches. Jordan Burroughs is too young. He's still competing, so he hasn't gone into a coaching career yet. But the other three were the greatest American wrestlers of all time who went on to become the greatest American wrestling coaches of all time. And they actually had more influence as coaches than they did as athletes. And I'm 100% confident that even in a worst-case scenario, worst case where this illness just doesn't resolve and Gordon is... Ne never able to compete again, that he would transform the sport in a different way, that he would become a far greater coach than I ever was. I, I believe this with all my heart and all my soul. I didn't even start jiu-jitsu until I was 28. Gordon Ryan is 25, and he already knows almost everything that I know. And, in addition, has many of his own techniques and uh, adaptations, which I never had. So at age 25, he's just as knowledgeable as I am and only getting more knowledgeable as each day passes. I'm 54. 
I didn't start till I was 28. Imagine Gordon Ryan when he's 54. He knows more about the sport now than I do at 54, and he's 25. So worst case scenario, worst case, where Gordon can't compete, he'll become the greatest coach of all time, and he'll have a greater influence on the sport than, than I ever could. It's really amazing what he's been able to do in such a short amount of time. I mean, other than just consistency and hard work, and he um, he always gives credit to you and says that you are essentially like a cheat code, and then having you as a coach has been a cheat code for his career. But what what separates him from everybody else? Like, what can people learn from that? If you wanted to mirror the in, immense success that Gordon's had in jujitsu, yeah, it's a it's a truly fascinating question. Um, there's a sense, Joan, which you've you've got to ask. You know, what's more important in in skill development? Is it the coach or the athlete? And I always tend to favor the athlete for the simple reason that if I coach a thousand students, you're not going to have a thousand Gordon Ryan's. You, you're going to have just two or three Gordon Ryan's out there out of a thousand. Um, now, in my defense. A large part of that is because of factors we talked about earlier. Some people could have been a Gordon Ryan, but life intervened in a certain way. They got injured. They fell in love. They they, they, they moved to a different country or what have you. Um, they just chose another career. But there, there has to be a recognition that there are some athletes who bring something to the table which the others don't. And no matter how good or bad the coach is, that person if that person hadn't walked in the room, the coach never would have been able to develop someone else to that level. So there is something to be said for this idea that there are, there are some athletes out there that just bring something to the table which no one else does. And the question you're asking is a fascinating question, is what the hell is it? What do these guys do? Um, people talk about persistence. It's not persistence. Okay, there's a lot of people out there who do the wrong thing very persistently and they get nowhere. It's intelligent, adaptive persistence. Yes, persistence is part of the formula because if you're not there for long enough, skills take time. Okay, um, there's a whole scientific literature about the development of skills and how, it, uh, uh, how it's almost like a, an, an electrical wiring in the human body and it occurs over time. Um, but as I said, just doing the wrong thing repetitively isn't going to make you a world champion. So what kind of persistence is required? Well, it has to be adaptive. You have to be able to look at what you're doing and engaging in and assess whether it's working or not. Which parts are working? Which parts are failing? Why are they working? Why are the other parts failing? And make adaptations over time so that you change your training structure in response to success and failure. And this has to be done along intelligently guided routines. And so it's not enough just to say, well, Gordon Ryan's just persistent. He just hung out in the gym long enough and he got good. Okay, no. It's because he's adapted the various things that he's tried through trial and error as time went by and looked for success and failure and paired out the various failures or tried to improve upon them 
and kept the various successes. And that idea of adaptive persistence is probably the single most important thing. Now, persistence itself is a value-laden term. You used a, a, a term that I, I love and, and is deeply embedded in martial arts before, Joe. You talked about discipline. Okay, persistence is a more wide-ranging way of talking about discipline. Um, but discipline goes in so many different ways. It's not just about showing up to the gym and showing up to the workout. It's not just about being told to do 300 repetitions and doing all 300. It's also about discipline of thought. Okay, That's the most difficult form of discipline, to stay mentally engaged in the game. When you've been working out all day and you're dog tired and all you want to do is go home and watch a movie, but you don't. And you sit back and ask yourself, what did I do today? Why did I succeed at A and why did I fail at B? And you research and you talk to your, to, to, to your mentors and, and your, your fellow athletes and you puzzle things out and you solve problems. That's the kind of discipline that really comes in. It's more the mental discipline of mental engagement in the project and the ability to say what failed on Tuesday can be modified by this method, this method, and this method, and it can succeed on Wednesday of building cumulative success over time while eliminating failure, of staying in the game, that's persistence, but making it adaptive so that as circumstances change and as the problems you've confronted with change, you're adapting to that change and intelligently directing it by asking yourself these questions. What is making this work and what is making this fail? How can I change this to my advantage? And all of this training and this trying to figure out the proper way to address all these various problems and the solutions that they present that that you 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 find to, to to deal with them is this something that's written down? Do you do you, do you talk about it after classes? Do you talk about it before classes? Is it something that you're documenting, or is it something you keep in your memory? Great question. Um, I try very hard to keep everything very informal. Why? Because informal human relationships create a group camaraderie which cold clinical studies never can. Training together with the same people for years is a hard thing. Everyone's got a big ego. A lot of times those egos clash. A lot of times you don't like the people you're training with. There's a lot of rivalries inside any training room. I don't like training with that guy. I like training with this guy. Keeping a lid on negative social interactions over time is a big, big part of it. I've failed spectacularly in some cases. Okay, I've had students leave. They said, John, I don't like the, the way the room feels. I don't feel welcome in here. And they just leave and they're happier somewhere else. That's good. It's good for them to be happy. But I've always found when you try and keep an informal group class based around things like that, that people don't talk about humor, um, uh, sacrifice for uh, uh, people you work alongside, this keeps a cohesion in the room which is important for development, which can literally take years. It can't just be everything's cold, unemotional, and documented. I like to keep things, I know I come across as a, a cold, <laughs> unemotional asshole, um, uh, but 
uh, in class, I'm much more informal, and we joke a lot. We tease each other, and it's it's a lot more laid back than it appears from from the way I am. Publicly. I don't think you come across that way. By the way, <laughs> I, think, I know you, you pretty well. I think um, you, you're just efficient. We we but you know we we play around a lot. We joke a lot, and it has to be that way. Has to because it, it's uh, Joe. You've been in training rooms for years, your whole life. You know what it's like. like Dude, there's times you're looking at the guy across the room, you're like, I fucking can't stand this guy. And now you got to go and spar him. You're going to spar someone you don't like, it's going to get physical. It's going to get heated. Okay, and so keeping things human is a big, big part of it. So I try to avoid overly cold clinical documentation. Okay, here's how we do things, step one, step two. It's, in the classroom, I try to keep it more informal. So when these situations come up and you don't feel like they're being accurately addressed, then you find an informal way yeah. to discuss it. Yeah, and often it's in a group setting, and we'll, I'll, I'll, you know, we'll make fun of someone failed spectacularly with a technique. We'll all make fun of them and laugh mm. about it, and then we'll go, okay, here's how you would do it, and we go through trial and error. We say, okay, it worked on this guy, but uh, what if the guy was more flexible? We pull in a flexible guy. We go, okay, what if the guy was heavier than you? And we, and we play and experiment like this. And that kind of informal group setting uh, keeps a better co group cohesion over time. One of the problems that Gordon had um, with this, uh, this stomach thing was uh, recurring staph infection. Hmm. Craig Jones said he had the same thing yeah. too. It, is that something that's an environmental issue in a, in a specific location? Like I'm not, I don't totally understand where staph comes from because I know it, it's it's something that lives in the skin. Yeah. It lives in your in your mucous membrane, right? But it also can be very prevalent in some gyms, right? Uh, yeah, staph is like. Uh, it's universally present. Like right. you, you and I right now are covered in stuff. Yeah. Okay. And there are many different varieties of stuff. And uh, some of them are quite innocuous and some of them are extremely damaging. And um, uh, in general, uh, staff works by going through some kind of damage to the skin and penetrating the dermis scratches, and scratches, yeah. abrasions of some kind. That's why they often occur in places like the elbows and the knees and the forehead because these for most of the contact with the mat. And um, if there's, uh, now, as I said, many of the forms of staff are uh, quite innocuous and penetrate the dermis with no, uh, with no effect, and others can be extremely damaging, all the way to like flesh-eating viruses, which can absolutely change your life for the worst. Um, uh, as regards geographical locations, you can reduce and I'm not speaking as a medical authority here but in, in my experience as a coach you can reduce the occurrence through good hygiene that's a uh, running a good hygienic uh, program is important um, you run into problems when mats aren't cleaned well uh, but in truth I do believe that most of the uh, infections, not just staff, but also other skin infections that commonly occur in gyms, tend to be more person-to-person -person than mat-to-person. Um, I know uh, 
training in New York, we had a very high incidence of staph infections. Yeah, you had a slight smile on your face when I was bringing up in yeah, I didn't want to environmental names or anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, what? But you um, couldn't, yeah, you couldn't hide yeah, that. that. There's, there's no way to get around it. So there's um, an issue with the New York gym. Uh, there was. There, there, there was. Um, what do you think was going on there? Just uh, it wasn't clean correctly? No, I, I just think that the, the number one problem was that we had an enormously high number of visitors per class. Now think about it. Let's say you're a kid from Nebraska who wants to train with the squad. You've just saved up all your money. You're living in your Nebraska. You're not making that much. And you bought a plane ticket and you got a hotel room in New York City. New York City is literally five times more expensive than your hometown in Nebraska. You saved up all your money. And then three days before you fly, you get a staph infection on your skin. If you cancel everything, you lose all that hard-earned money. What are you going to do? You're going to fly to New York and train with the squad, aren't you? That's what they all did. So mm. we'd get people coming in. They would have a staph infection on their elbow or knee, and they'd wear an elbow or knee pad. And when they come in, you look at them. Skin looks good. We're fine. After like three minutes of training, the elbow pad slips, and you just see a bloody infection. And I'd be like, buddy, come over here. I'd be like, what's that on your elbow? I don't know. <laughs> really? You don't know? Just came up. Yeah, I scratched it. Like, that's a staph infection. You're going to have to leave the mats. Okay, and so this was a common thing. Anytime you have massive numbers of visitors, you have much less control over who's coming to the gym. The visitors themselves are incentivized to continue training even when they have an infection just because they've invested so much of their money in the trip to the gym. Right. So it is a potential problem. Um, thankfully, we were able to get around the problem at the end with just a skin infection program where we just looked at people. When they came in to, to visit, they had to do a full inspection of their skin. So you had a woman's inspection and a men's inspection, and they were inspected, and the, the problem that's so crazy. You have to but it, but it, yeah, I mean, it's kind of awkward. <laughs> but um, that's but that's how wild that gym that's was. That's how wild it was. Yeah. So. Did you guys use anything like defense soap or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I always encourage people to use. There's also other. Um, I, I always found the best results came with Hippocleans. That's a hospital soap, which is very very powerful. Um, there's but isn't also, that a like a serious uh, antibacterial yeah, soap that? Yeah kills all the good stuff too yeah that's the problem well you, that's the, the, the good um, thing about defense soap yeah there's there's very little like reputable medical literature literature on on how much defense soap and the, i mean they, they basically use like tea tree oil they're all based Eucalyptus, around that yeah tree so oil. um yeah. there's not a lot of hard evidence to show that they do such a great job but there, there's no uh, incentive to make those studies either yeah, yeah. so i don't think we're going to get it yeah. it's basically all the evidence is anecdotal so yeah. you guys I, I tried this for three months and i never got a staff infection yeah. Well, well, how reliable that trial is that? Like, you know, was it a double blind trial? I'd have to trial? talk to Guy Sacco from uh, Defense to find out what studies have been done on yeah. tea tree oil or eucalyptus but oil. Bear in but mind always that when they give you a study, it's not just a study, it's a sales pitch. True. Say they're going to give you a study, which is so. But it, to, What to, about acidophilus and things along those yeah, lines? That, again, yeah. it's all anecdotal. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no hard evidence. I, I, I like to go with evidence rather than just anecdotes. Um, but 
uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a problem. Um, but you're not getting in. Sorry to interrupt, but you're not getting those same problems in Puerto Rico. No, correct? there's also other reasons too. Like Puerto Rico has much more sunshine. It's, yeah, that's what I was going to bring um, up. Sunshine is a natural uh, antibacterial uh, element and uh, um, antifungal as well. So uh, it's just a generally healthier lifestyle. Like as a general rule, wind and sun and uh, good for skin infections. We're also talking about ocean. Uh, swimming in the ocean yeah, and yeah. that might I, I think, play think a that part. These things all are, are positives, um, as opposed to like you know a, a sweaty basement with yeah. um, you know, in New York hundreds City, hundreds of people. Like it's that's in a, a polluted city. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a tough environment. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I do believe that you can. There there are things you can do to reduce the the, the likelihood of it, but at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do, and there is a danger that you can end up with the situation they have in hospitals where you use so much uh, cleansing that you end up producing super strains right. of, of uh, bacteria, which is terrifying. That's, that, that's when you get into some truly scary stuff. Yeah. Like I remember when I had my hip replacement, the doctors, uh, there's a 14 inch scar on my, uh, on my butt. And um, the doctors were very, very concerned that, uh, even in a hospital, there could be a staph infection. And they were saying, like, you know, the strains we have here are not like the strains you have in a gym. These things all, like, they'll, they'll, we'll have to take the whole thing out again if it oh. gets infected. So um, there was, like, a critical two-week period when the scar goes to close itself where you have to be super vigilant. Um, so, yeah, so you, you, you want to be careful about going too crazy about the cleaning program, then you start killing, as you say, the good bacteria, and then you get a proliferation of potentially super strains of bacteria. So it's kind of uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. How and, is that hip replacement? Um, it's, it's magical insofar as it makes you pain-free. Um, but always understand that they cut through 14 inches of the most important muscles in your body, which are your, your gluteus muscles. And um, uh, so it, you feel quite weak on that side um, still you, oh yeah how yeah. long ago uh, be like four years now I think there's no bringing it back uh, think about it if, if a guy took a knife and cut you on the hamstring 14 inches down your hamstring <sighs> would your hamstring ever be the same again no you, you could walk you could run but it wouldn't be like it was before the mm. body, it's not like Hollywood, Hollywood movie where you get cut and you're, you're fine um, uh, so it, basically you're pain-free but weak and the other danger, of course, is there's always the danger of infection that could destroy everything. And um, uh, just the fact that uh, if severe dynamic pressure was put on it, it could pop out and dislocate. And that would be, that would be a serious problem. More severe dynamic pressure than would be required for a regular hip or the same? Because um, obviously any hip can pop yeah, out. With, any hip can pop out, but uh, significantly less in the case of a hip replacement. Wow. But no pain. Yeah, that's the main thing. Yeah, I, I, uh, Unfortunately, I didn't mean to sound like a hypochondriac, but I, I have a crippled knee on the same leg. Yeah. So I'm going to get a knee replacement on the same side. As this is all from a rugby accident yeah. for f people that don't and know the, your history. Uh, I had a operation surgery. and the surgery was the, the root cause of the problem. They did a shitty job. It was yeah. 1980s surgery. Yeah. My friend Steve, uh, he used to be on the U.S. ski team and he's had some ungodly number of surgeries on his knees. He has both of his knees replaced. They're all resurfaced and the whole deal. But his How old is he? 
65, I believe. He's in his 60s. How's his mobility in his knees? Terrible. Yeah. He's a savage. God bless He him. doesn't give a fuck. He's the guy. He's. I mean, he's had more surgeries than anybody I've ever met in my life. He's had his, both his shoulders done, both of his knees resurfaced. He's had retinas detached. He's had everything. Yeah. He's... Wow. He's, he's still trains. Still trains. <laughs> God bless Constantly. him. He's a good man. He's an animal. Still spars. <laughs> Even yeah. better. Oh yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. Wow. He just he goes. I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. That's his <laughs> always his attitude. He's always in pain. Doesn't give a fuck. He's I always, like it. One of the most courageous guys I've ever met. But he um, he uh, was the first guy that I ever met that had knee replacements. His knees had to get resurfaced. They were just bone on bone yeah. and cartilage, and you know. So he's got these metal things that. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to look at. And they're going to do that to you, huh? Yeah. When are they going to do that? Um, I'm hoping to hold her off as long as possible. Um, uh, I'm. I would like to uh, see the the juniors in the squad get uh, into the mature phase of their career, because um, you just never know. Like if I got the new replacement, I, I should be okay for for coaching and teaching but mine is complicated by the fact that i'll have a hip replacement and a knee replacement on the same leg which is a little more of a gamble and um, gamble in terms of the, the uh, sizing of, of, what, and yeah, of what i can do afterwards too. Mm. and um uh so uh, i'm hoping to hold it off as long as i can what are you doing now in terms of exercise um i just uh do very very light uh weight lifting and uh you can you can actually lift a surprising amount in basic lifts like a deadlift or a, a clean with uh, with a hip replacement. You can't go crazy, but you can lift, you know, like 200 pounds is not a problem. And um, uh, I just lift enough to sort of uh, reduce pain in my body as, as much as I can. And um, uh, it's all pretty basic stuff. Does it frustrate you to not be able to roll? Uh, I, I can roll very light. But um, uh, at this point, I, I made a decision when I got my hip replacement that my life would be about my students rather than myself. So um, uh, as, as long as you keep your mind focused on, uh, on them, then I don't miss it. I, I get more pleasure in watching them roll now than I do in rolling myself. But you do always want to be in a position where you can move your body enough to demonstrate it. Yes, I, I, I'd yeah. be heartbroken if I couldn't demonstrate a move. That would be... I'd be sad. Yeah, that is an interesting thing, right, about martial arts is it requires the person who's teaching yeah. to be able to perform the movements. Yeah, there's literally no other way to do yeah. it. You, you can't just describe it. It's not going to work. After I had my hip replacement, um, my students bravely demonstrated all the techniques, and I would point with a cane. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like master yeah. splinter. <laughs> I don't think that's sustainable over time. Though, but <laughs> You can do that for a couple of weeks, but yeah. not, not forever. What keeps you motivated at this stage of your career? I mean, you've already amassed this uh, incredible empire of killers. You've got these guys to move with you all the way to Puerto Rico. And I wanted to talk to you about that as well, because what is that like to go from crazy, crowded, polluted New York City to paradise? I mean, you're in this gorgeous, yeah. I mean, watch yeah. the videos of you guys, like there, it's a gorgeous environment. No, it's, it's beautiful. Um, uh, while I taught in New York, many of my best students in the, in the gym were Puerto Ricans who live in New York, has a very high Puerto Rican population. They always told me about uh, their, their homeland and they would go back and talk about it. It always sounded intriguing. I'd never been. Um, uh, Gordon, Craig, Nikki, and some other members of the uh, squad had gone down there and they talked very highly of it. They loved it. Um, when COVID-19 broke out, it was difficult to train in New York. 
and uh, uh, the, the the local authorities were very much against the idea of of gyms training. We we had a special ability to train because uh, we only allowed professional athletes to train. It was legal for professional athletes to train in New York, but not regular classes. So I lost ninety five percent of my students um, as soon as the the order to to not run regular class, classes came. So it was um, it was just them training in the basement and. Um, uh, we got an opportunity to to go down there and and train in Puerto Rico, and uh, the squad was very much in favour of it. I, I've me personally, I, I know you said New York's a horrible, polluted city, but what's well, a great city? Yeah, I, I, I love New York. I it always is, did. It is horrible and polluted, yeah. but it's yeah. also amazing. It was, I, I focus more on the amazing parts of it. I, I loved it. You you, so, you like lived in the city though. Yeah. I think most of the students that I you think had that that's the problem. I, I always right? tell them, I like, do. You guys literally see the worst parts of New York. All you see is the, the bridges, the tunnels, and, and the, the parking garage that costs crazy amounts of money. And then you go home at night. Like You need to live in the city. But they never did. So, um, Well, it's very difficult to do. Like, yeah. You have to make a lot of money to be able to live well in New York City, uh, right? Not, I mean, I came to New York with $400 in my pocket, and I lived in the city. But that was time. in the 1920s, <laughs> right? You got I, I set myself <laughs> up for that one. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you hit me right between the eyes for that one. <laughs> yeah, nineteen thirties, Joe. Nineteen thirties. But you must. Have, I mean, at the end, you probably had a nice place, and you were doing pretty well yeah. teaching there. Um, yeah, uh, it's a hugely successful gym. Uh, but I, I had no part of the gym. That was my teacher's gym, Henzo. So uh, I, I, I never took any money from the gym. I only made money on my private classes and really and seminars. You so, never got yeah. taught. You never got paid to teach at the gym. No, I, I was paid uh, a little bit, a stipend towards my rent. So what? Yeah. I, really? I, I'm fine with that. I, I, I don't uh, see any reason why you should take money from your teacher. Um, I, I've always believed in the. I think the Americans have. They call it, uh, you eat what you kill. Mm -hmm. um, I've always believed in that. And oh, okay. um, uh, I used to teach privates all day, and um, uh, that was more than enough for me. I'm not someone who needs a lot of money. Um, That's a very unusual perspective. Your perspective, this is again what I'm saying, like it's good luck replacing John Donahue. Like good, good luck replicating that because of the fact that you don't need a lot of money. Like most people, they want a lot of money. They yeah. just they well, want uh, they want a bigger apartment. Yeah. They want a car. They want a nice this and a nice that. I, I think uh, money has its value. It, it, the prime function of money should be freedom. Like it gives you f a freedom to do things, and that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But uh, I did that largely by the fact that I didn't want many things, and um, uh, I had many friends who were very successful. Like, for example, when uh, George St. Pierre would would uh, call me to train, I. I would fly up to to um, Canada, and he would have a nice hotel room for me. So it wasn't like I lived like a homeless person or something like that. Um, but I just I, I just feel like the as long as you have enough money to be free, you're you're good. And uh, that was always my approach. Living in New York City, what was the big appeal of it to you? Um, initially, I came there for my education at Columbia University, and uh, you must remember I was raised in New Zealand. And uh, New Zealand is a beautiful, beautiful country, um, but it's very small. There were more people in Manhattan than there were in my whole country when, when I left. And uh, moreover, New Zealand is largely a uh, indigenous Maori 
population, a Polynesian population, and a uh, uh, European population from our colonial past. So um, really there's a fairly limited sort of group of people. It's like you're either Polynesian, Maori, or, uh, or, or European. Uh, when you come to New York, it's literally like the entire world is represented in there. And it's just a, an amazing experience. And um, like people talk about travel being the best educator. And I, I, I sincerely believe that. I believe that travel opens your mind in ways that nothing else can. But the problem with travel is that it creates an irregular lifestyle where you can't develop skills. And what makes any human being great at anything is skill development. The only way you can develop skills is by having routine in your life. So where do you go? If you want to travel, you can't have routine. You can't develop skills. And if you're stuck in one place, you develop a routine, you can develop skills, but your life's boring and you don't really get to see much of the world. But New York City was the incredible compromise. It had both. You could be in one location. You didn't go to the world. The world came to you. And so you had all the benefits of travel, of meeting people from every culture and seeing how they lived their lives, et cetera, et cetera, while at the same time you had a fixed location from where you could train, develop skills, and become great at the things you loved. But it doesn't seem like you really have the time to experience much of what New York City had to offer with the schedule that you had in terms of being there seven days a week, training people constantly, doing privates all day, training the squad. Where is all this time? Nighttime. Nighttime. So what would you do at nighttime? Go to different restaurants? Of course, yeah. yeah that was night, what it was yeah. about? And um, uh, you can go around, meet people you've, uh, you've acquainted, coaching. Uh, I have many famous athletes coming in, and um, people from the UFC would come in and, and work, and you would go out at night and, and talk, and uh, so it was easy. Daytime was work, and nighttime was, it was relaxation. So you just enjoyed the diverse nightlife of Manhattan. Yeah. Also, just, I, I worked yeah. in the nightclub industry for my first 10 years in Manhattan, too. So um, uh, I was very familiar with the, the nightlife scene. we got to talk Gordon Ryan into moving to Texas. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be pretty damn easy for you. Like Gordon, first of all, he loves Texas, like loves it. Um, secondly, he loves cars and Texas is a car culture. I took him out of my 900 horsepower Dodge Ram. Did he crash it? Oh, he fucking loved it. No, he didn't drive it. I drove it. Okay. But I it's I have the most ridiculous truck. It's a, a Hennessy Dodge Ram. As it's 900 horsepower. It goes That's 0 insane. to 60 in 3 seconds. That's insane. Um for a giant truck. An odd thing about me, Joe, among many odd things, is that I learned to drive in New Zealand in an Austin Morris Thousand. It's a car that I believe has around 37 horsepower <laughs> with a four-speed stick. <laughs> it is literally the most feeble car of all time. Like wow. going up a steep hill is like a total challenge. Like zero to 60, I'm not even sure if I can get to 60. Um, and that's what I learned to drive on. Then I came to America. I went straight to New York. I haven't driven a car in 30 years. That's amazing. So now I'm in Puerto Rico. You, you have to have a car. So I'm I'm looking around. That's the car? Yeah. That thing but has 37 horsepower? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Wow, it must be so slow. It's unbelievably slow. Morris Minor. 
Wow, look at that thing. Hmm. Good job on the Google. He's the best. I've never seen one of those before. Never so, even heard of it. So now I'm 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 looking at cars, and cars have completely changed yeah. from from what I learned you in know the what early nineteen eighties. Get yourself a Tesla. Man, I don't know if I'm ready for that. You're ready. <laughs> I have one right here. I'll let you drive it. In Puerto Rico, the electricity goes out pretty often. Uh, Tesla might not be the right choice. In Texas, for sure. Good point. That's a good point. If you um, get out here, though, get get one of them. I'm I'm looking at every car now. It's over 300 horsepower. It's insane. Tesla has 1,000. When I was a kid, automatic transmissions were like three speed, slow as hell, 10 speeds. (laughs) They've got dual clutch. They've got crazy stuff. The the, the transmission, the automatic transmissions now, they shift faster than a human can. Like they're better than manuals. They're all interesting, but they're all all stupid compared to electric cars. Really? Oh, yeah. Look, I'm an automobile collector. I love muscle cars. I have a whole collection. I have a 1970 Chevelle and a 65 Corvette and a 70 Barracuda, a 69 Camaro and a 69 Nova. I love those cars. They are stupid in comparison to my Tesla. My Tesla is infinitely better than them. Infinitely. They're just amazing. They're art. They're, they're rumble and sound yeah, yeah. and feel. And it's just, there's, they're, 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 they're so mechanical. I just love shifting and putting in the clutch and click, seeing the, letting it off and go. But in terms of like sheer technology and brilliance, every time I'm in my Tesla, I'm, I'm like shaking my head like this thing is fucking amazing. It's so fast. It goes zero to 60 in 2.4 seconds. It has a massive screen that shows me the navigation. I talk to it. I'll say like, boop, boop, navigate to Three Forks Steakhouse. And it's a bloop, and it asks me if I want to navigate on autopilot. And I go, fuck yeah. And you hit, hit the button. And if you want, you go doo doo, and it does the whole thing for you. It'll navigate for you. It'll it's drive insane. for you. It, it, it's, it's so effortless the way it like passes cars and gets on the highway and you never have to go to a gas station and plug it in at my house or plug it in here at the studio. Jamie does the same. He plugs in here too. Did you say zero to 60 in 2.6 seconds? 2.4. 2.4. Now, uh, am I correct in saying at that point you're starting to deal with g-forces oh yeah you're like that's like acceleration this. where you're, you're like throw oh yeah like I'll take your you. face is getting pulled i'll take you i'll stuff. drive you back home to your hotel today that's scary it's, as fuck it's hilarious <laughs> and it's quiet that's makes no sound part. just <laughs> we grew up in a generation where you put your foot down the exactly. faster it goes the more noise comes in. oh yeah so. well that's with my truck my truck is really fast but it's really loud it's really and gordon loved it he's, oh yeah yeah you got no, a he's giant obsessed by automobile now, boner now, on that <laughs> But it's uh, they're stupid compared to Teslas. Um, tell me something. Um, you said you had a '69 uh, uh, Nova. Yes. When you when you have these cars, are they stock? Are no. the engines stock, or do I don't you get have custom any stock cars? What do you put inside them? I get uh, modern engines. Yeah. Really? Yeah. How does that work? You get a company like uh, Roadster Shop is the ones that did like my Chevelle, my Barracuda, and a couple other cars. And what they do is they'll take the shell of these beautiful vintage muscle cars and then they put a custom chassis and they take this custom chassis that they design specifically to add rigidity to the body yeah, yeah. and then you have uh, a much more sophisticated um, uh, suspension technology ind- independent front and rear suspension so all the wheels move independently they handle far better 
massive disc brakes, really sophisticated shock absorbers and coilovers. What do they do for transmission? Oh, it's a modern transmission. So it's a modern six-speed transmission. So, Amazing. Yeah, it's much, 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 much. So better. essentially, would I be correct in saying this is this is a Nova only in appearance? Yeah, yeah in appearance. Yeah. yeah. So you have the best of both worlds. They call them resto mods. Yeah. And and what does the Nova have for horsepower? Six hundred and fifty oh horsepower, something that's like that. Crazy. The Nova is still in California. It's still being worked on. That's uh, that's Steve Strope has been working on that car for for a couple of years. He's like, got a very small uh, shop, and he he has a small amount of people working on. It. Roadster Shop is a very large shop, and they they have they they have a lot of employees. And Amazing. They do work. Google Master. What what's the word? Google Master. He's asking me a question. So. Oh, Google Master. What was the horsepower in the stock '69 Chevy Nova? Chevy Nova SS. Look up the like the fastest one. I'm gonna go with 360. First of all, what, what did it have under the hood? Was that like a, a 420? Uh, it was probably I don't know. They had the old Hemi's. Four, the it might have been a 454. You might have been able to get it in a 454, but I don't think it had more than uh, the high 300s. Now that's pre-catalytic converters, correct? So yeah. They probably had some pretty decent horsepower. Maybe, but you know, did it have a manual transmission? It, yeah, they, they you could buy it in a manual transmission, but they, you couldn't even lay it down because the tires were dog shit. They were thin, yeah. skinny tires, Makes and you stomped on the yeah. gas. They peel out and go sideways, and the, the balance was all fucked up. It was very front end heavy. They and, were terrible cars going around corners, and also the brakes back then were probably terrible. Too. Drum brakes yeah. in the back, oh. Ugh. Oh. yeah, like <laughs> barely. But it's everything now is four wheel disc brakes. Everything. Yeah. I yeah. Stand it. Well, some people like those old cars though, just because they're kind of like a, a time stamp. I think Is it's. It? I found something that says advertised power of three hundred horsepower. Which uh, year is that? Like the '69 Chevy Nova SS. 350. Okay, that's a 350. Yes, it, it depends see, on what engine you have in it, right? Yeah, see if you can get one with a 454. That's like top of the food chain. I know like the Chevelle, 70 Chevelle had a 454 you could get. I think that was in the 400 horsepower range. But it's, um, again, it's they're fun. They rumble. They make yeah. noise. They feel but good. You're talking about performance. Yeah, performance. It's, There's it's a not new, even comparison. The Tesla Roadster is coming out. It's going to go 0 to 60 in 1.1 second. And it has a jet propulsion system option. It's a SpaceX <laughs> option. And they've only they've shown it only in CGI form. They haven't like showed it in an actual video form, but the 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 video of, with the CGI is a representation of what this jet propulsion engine out the back, along with this preposterous four wheel drive system and about a thousand horsepower, takes this really light car that's probably about twenty five hundred pounds, and goes zero to sixty in a little over one second. That's insane. It's insane. Now, uh, wait a minute. Two and a half thousand pounds? Yeah, I don't think it's very big. It's a very small car. Because normally, normally electric vehicles are very, very heavy because of the batteries. Well, there's going to be a, a – the beautiful thing about the electric vehicles is the, the weight distribution is all at the bottom of the car because the batteries are all below it. And it's Good for fa stability. Fantastic for stability. In fact, Jamie has the X, 
and the X literally doesn't get knocked over. You hit them, they, they're like a weeble. They, they bounce back up. I might be wrong about the weight. It might be closer to 3,000 pounds. I'm estimating based on like a very light, like a Porsche. Dude, like, even 3,000 pounds is incredibly yeah. good. Like a Toyota Corolla is 3,000 pounds. Yeah, a Porsche, like a 911 GT3, they're that's light. about 3,000 pounds. Yeah. yeah. P100D is 5,500 pounds. Yeah, mine's a big car. Mine's yeah, big. And it's still 5,500 pounds goes zero to 60 in That's two and a half crazy. seconds. Yeah. Wait till you get in it. Dude. You're going to shit your pants. <laughs> You're not going to believe how fast they go. It doesn't seem real. But 1.1 seconds at that yeah. point, that's like fighter, fighter jet levels exactly. of G acceleration. See if you can find the video because they made a video recently that shows the Tesla Roadster. And again, it's a, it's a, a digital recreation or a digital uh, representation of what it's going to actually do. but That's crazy. That's what you want in your life. You want a Tesla. <laughs> I'd have to so move to quiet Texas to inside, do it. And you talk to them. You tell them, like, what kind of music do you like? What kind of music do you like? I, what I, do you into? They didn't really make a sound. So but what I, kind of music do you like? I, I would you probably go with, I'd probably go with operatic music. You listen to opera? Yeah. Well, of course you do. You're a fucking dude from a comic book. You're not even a real person. But you could say, play Beethoven. You just boop, boop, press a button, and it will just, Spotify will start playing Beethoven. Yeah. Crazy. You talk to it. You tell it to navigate places. You tell it to call people. Call John Donaher. He'll just call you. I fucking love it. But again, it's like, there's... there's, Does that lead to a situation where driving just fundamentally changes to a point where you just become a passenger in your own car? Yes. And it's going to be that way. Uh, autonomous vehicles. Neil deGrasse Tyson was on here a couple of days ago, and he was talking about that, that autonomous vehicles are going to, within the next 10, 20 years, they're going to be everywhere. It's going to be, they're going to be communicating with each other. You're just going to sit in it, and you're going to, like, tell it where to go, and it's going to do everything. In one way, it's kind of depressing because you would lose a skill, a skill of driving, which is a pleasurable skill. But on the other hand, it's also very liberating insofar as now you have presumably hours of every day if yes. you commute for two hours now you've got two extra hours in your day we could research learn study yes well i use that time almost exclusively if i'm i'm i it's rare that i'm listening to music in my car these days uh, i usually listen to either a book on tape or a podcast so i'm usually listening to something entertaining and educating interesting educational anyway Mostly, mostly books. Uh, I really enjoy yeah, books on tapes yeah. and cars, because it changes a commute instead Absolutely. of commute become, becomes fixated on a yeah. topic. Like you know? we we look upon a commute now as a very negative thing in your mm-hmm. life. Like it's it's two hours of your day wasted. Yeah. Whereas now it's going to be two hours of some of the most profitable part of your day. Yeah. It's really in all about what you're absorbing during that time, and I think it's one of the things that people really do. Oh, here it is. Watch yeah, it's this. A lot of fine. Give me some. So uh, give me some volume too, because the volume's kind of crazy. No, I can't. It's not there. Oh. There it goes. Actually. <laughs> it that's what literally it's be sounds like. like a jet. Yeah. That's the SpaceX package. So that's the car. Beautiful looking car. But watch this. One point one seconds, zero to sixty, with the that option the SpaceX option, which is literally a thruster out the back. Like, what in the holy fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like watching some kind of science fiction out there. I, it's amazing. Oh, 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 and, and what's next? But like, what, what, what happens in, I'm just trying to throw ideas around here, you, you want to parallel park that car. Oh, it'll do it for you. Okay. Guaranteed. Because, dude, I mean, if there's you a step lot of on cars. That accelerator, just, that thing's going to. Yeah, but there's a lot of cars. You, I don't know if the Tesla has that option, but there are cars that will park for you. You press a button, it'll go. Yeah, it has park assist. Yeah. I've never used it. It always says, like, 
it's not available sometimes. I, I know it has it because I've got the message like. It's I wonder. Mine must has it too. Probably. I'm sure it does. Yeah, I've never used it. I just I'm a man. I know how to parallel park. Mm-hmm. It's part of being a man. But that thing, how do you yeah. parallel park that? If you well, touch the accelerator, you're... no. But that's the interesting thing. The the, the modulation is very easy. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to modulate. It's like it's not hard to drive slowly in a Tesla. Oh, okay. It's it's when you want it, it's there. Okay. But, oh, they're, they're smart people. I'm sure they thought yeah. of all these things. Yeah. Yeah, and then apparently Porsche has uh, an even better to drive electric car. My friend Reggie Watts has one of those Porsche Taycans, and he had a Tesla before, and he said this one is like all the best features of the Tesla, but with the kind of handling that you get from a Porsche. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what's going to happen when all the entrenched car companies, um, Toyota, Ford, Chevy, stop bringing out all their. I, I presume they're also working on these. They're all doing it right now. They're currently doing it. Like um, a GM just released a thousand horsepower Hummer, so they have a new pickup truck that's all electric. It's a Hummer, and it's. A ridiculous beast of a vehicle. These these numbers yeah. are crazy. Are you saying a thousand horsepower? Can you please Google um, Chevy Camaro, nineteen eighty three, piece H- of horsepower. Shit. Ugh, terrible car. The worst. The Those horsepower. The, the they, they dark like two hundred horsepower. Like yeah, maybe. How much? One hundred seventy five. Literally, th- this is the time when I was growing up. I, I, I imagine what, what is a, a Chevy Camaro put out now? Like like four hundred horsepower. Oh, you can get one with six six plus the ZL one. That is such a piece of shit. Oh, look that, at that thing! Like, they should melt those and make cameras out of them. <laughs> <laughs> there's like there's so. But this, isn't it crazy so to think that was considered like a very high performance car in the early 1980s? Yeah, it probably it was. had like a, a three speed auto. Look at the Mustang. That was slow the 80s. as hell. God, so ugly. Piece of shit. And the with 80s less were than the, 200 horsepower. Oh, they were the darkest years for automobiles. But, but think about it. We, those muscle cars you talked about from the 60s, they had better horsepower than cars 15 years later. Well, it was the gas crisis. Isn't that crazy yeah. to think that technology actually went backwards for 15 it years? It did, but also they were using leaded gasoline, they were the terrible yeah. polluting. Like if you look at photographs of Los Angeles from the 1960s and 70s versus it's Los Angeles bad. in the 90s, very bad. it got way better because yeah. of the changes in the, yeah, uh, the admissions standards. But isn't it remarkable to think what they've done with petrochemical engines mm-hmm. in the 1990s and, and beyond? Like the, the horsepower now is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Just petrochemical engines and then... Electric engines it's make just those a whole new level yeah. above that. It, re- it really does. It, it makes them obsolete, and all cars will be electric within fifty years. I'm ninety nine percent positive of that. I think there'll be enthusiasts that still want to drive around yeah. electric uh, or, or gasoline combustion engines, but it's once you're in one of those electric there's no cars, going back. no, they're so the the response is immediate. The way they move, there's no there's no um, gears. Of course, there's no transmission. Right. Yeah. There's no ding, ding, ding. It just just goes. Yeah. Porsche apparently has two gears. They have one for high end for uh, efficiency and one for speed. So it's two. It's a two speed. But you it's know, crazy to yeah. think about. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, That's what you need. You know I wonder that. what the great sociological changes will be. Imagine driving coast to coast in America now. You just get in. You f- you fall asleep in the back seat. Mm, let the car could go, be, yeah. and you wake up 24 hours later, you're in California. I bet there'll be, uh, when technology does sufficiently rise to the point where that's possible, 
but the, there's also an issue with charging right now. Charging, charging. Mm. Tesla has that nailed. They have this supercharger system, so you could find charging stations very easily. These other car companies are sort of catching up and trying to build new infrastructure to make it easier to charge. Whether it's Mercedes, Mercedes has an amazing new. What is that thing called? The EQ something. Mercedes has this incredible new sedan that they just released. It's all electric, and it's it's like a spaceship. You're inside of the thing. It's just uh, Lewis from Unbox Therapy has the best. Uh, EQS. EQS. It's insane. See if you find a, a picture or a video of that. I thing. wonder if even things like the shape of cars will change. That's the Mercedes. That thing is fucking spectacular. I mean, it just kind of looks like a regular car until you get inside of it and you see all the screens. And I'm sure the performance is going to be off the charts, too. It's just a, it, like, look at that. I mean, it, you're in that thing. It doesn't make a sound. No, it looks like a science fiction movie. It's yeah, crazy. Amazing. And it's supposed to be incredible to drive. But again, it's also the level of detail on inside the car is Mercedes. So it's all top of the food chain, like the highest attention to detail and quality of build and just amazing stuff. G-Force. Mm -hmm. Oh, it shows you your G-Force. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> they're so it's fast. Crazy. I can't wait to take you on a drive. <laughs> Try to keep the G-Force below, like, mm -mm. six. No, I'm a, I don't take it out of ludicrous mode, by the way. <laughs> there's all these different modes that you can put in your there, Tesla There's in. an actual ludicrous mode. Oh, yeah, it like is the, fucking... Like the old movie Spaceballs. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, in Spaceballs, apparently one of the vehicles is called Plaid. That's why his new one is the Plaid. His Makes new total one, sense. Yeah, his new sedan goes zero to 60 in 1.9 seconds, the sedan. Yeah, that hasn't come out yet. But it's got three electric engines, and it has a range of 500 miles. That's pretty impressive. One charge. Yeah, that's the most he's ever had. The one I have has a range of like 300 and something. What is it, like 350? What is yours? It's a little bigger that's, than mine. Uh, mine's actually a little smaller, I think, technically. Yours is bigger. Yeah, it's the 320. X? It's oh, smaller, smaller range. Yeah, smaller range. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yours is what, yeah, 220? 320. 320, yeah. It's a little How small. long do the batteries last? That's a good question. There's also uh, a good question as to like what happens. They slowly deteriorate over time. Yeah. Like you don't charge them fully. Like when you charge it, it charges it to like 80%. Like you're supposed to do that with your cell phone too. Most people just charge your cell phone all the way, but really you're supposed to yes. do it at like 80%. Um, but over time, the range will lower. But I've had mine for a couple of years and I haven't noticed any deterioration yet. It's nothing where it like concerns me. What do they do when a battery expires? That's a good question. I don't know. They probably swap them out. They want to swap them out. They want to get it to a point where when you go to a station, you uh, it only takes a couple minutes because instead of charging your battery, they take your battery out and put a fresh one in. So okay. you'll like pull into some station. They'll put one a new one in, and then you go like a pit stop. And so instead of waiting many hours for a, a massive battery to charge, they'll just swap it out with one that's fully charged. Now. The central component of these batteries, lithium, is relatively mm. rare. Is this conflict mineral? It's a real issue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where does this go in the future? If the whole world switches over to lithium-powered batteries in cars, we go back to Afghanistan and start bombing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, makes total sense. I think that's. I don't think uh, there's a real solution other than maybe some new battery technology. Um, I think uh, not just lithium-ion, but I believe there's a. There's a new technology that they're working on. I want to say something aluminum-based. There's some 
you know, instead of lithium ion, there's some sort of aluminum-based battery technology that's currently in development that they think will charge faster and hold. See if you can find that. Some aluminum-based battery technology. I was reading about it just the other day, but it, I was multitasking and I didn't absorb it. But it was something about aluminum-based batteries being the next wave of that they're going to be able to get more range. Um, it'll charge quicker and... Aluminum, though, is very common. If that's possible, like aluminum is one of the most common mm. um, uh, metals that you can find on Earth. Man, it, it, there's some pretty exciting developments for humanity ahead between changes in, in vehicles, changes in currency. Like there's big changes ahead, it seems. There's a lot of changes, you know, and uh, one of the things that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and I were talking about the other day is Neuralink. That's uh, Elon's crazy brain interface technology where they're going to start with people that have um, uh, people that are paralyzed and people that have spinal issues, and they're going to use it to help them walk again, and it's going to help people with uh, various brain issues, help them uh, achieve a higher state of cognitive function, but then ultimately it's going to be used to advance human cognitive function to the point where, in his words, you're going to be able to talk without using words. Now, most people, they say that to me, it's like, oh, one of my stoner friends, like, all right, <laughs> like Eddie Bravo, bro, you're gonna talk without words. I'm like, dude, I can't wait. Here it is, uh, aluminum-based battery can triple the range, charge 70 times faster. See, That's there it is. Huge. Lithium ion powered electric cars take roughly eight to 10 hours to plug. Ba -ba 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 -bum. So this is some new technology. This aluminum graphene batteries run on the same voltage, have similar shape to that of lithium ion batteries. However, these are hybrid battery superconductors which allow them to retain three times more energy and, t and takes up to 70 times lesser times to recharge. Wow. Did they mention how much they weigh? Because lithium batteries are notoriously heavy. Oh, that's a good, good, really good question, right? Because I would imagine aluminum, that aluminum is generally fairly light. Yeah. Interesting. Graphene-based uh, aluminum ion batteries provide major benefits in terms of longer battery life. Oh, wow. Even more battery. Over 2,000 charge discharge cycles uh, testing so far with no deterioration in performance. That's incredible. Battery safety, very low fire potential, and lower environmental impact, more recyclable. And it's also like really common. The production of aluminum graphene batteries, well, obviously I'm, I'm talking about aluminum, not aluminum graphene. I don't even know what that is. Batteries will not require the usage of nickel, cobalt, and copper. That's extremely important. So it will give sovereign capability and resilience Around the energy sector, aluminum is one of the most recyclable metals and will reduce the stress on mining. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I just imagine that that's what's going to take place in all of these yeah. technology arenas, that there's just going to be new innovations that just move everything in a, a giant direction. But that, that Neuralink thing is the thing that confuses me the most because I, f I feel like that is the step, that's the first step that's going to change what a human being is. Because once that actually becomes something that really does increase your bandwidth to access information, it's going to increase your ability to be more productive. So more, you're going to be able to generate more wealth. The haves versus the have-nots, the gap will increase even wider, which will force more people to do it. I think it's going to be like cell phones. Cell phones originally were very rare. Very few people had them. Now everyone has them, and they're very cheap. I think that's probably what's going to happen with this sort of technology, which is going to lead to a change of what it means to be a human being. A human being is not just going to be 
symbiotic with technology and the fact that you choose to be like carry a cell phone, wear glasses, that kind of stuff. It's going to be just you. You're going to be integrated with computers and the internet. You're going to be a part of this weird grid. You're going to be a part of the system. You're not just going to be a biological entity. We're going to be hybrids. Fascinating. I wonder what the implications of that would be. Well, it's going to change all the unique things about people and the variabilities, right? Because with CRISPR, so with genetic engineering, right, which is they're already working on that. So they already have the ability to, at least in uh, a small way, manipulate human genes. So they're doing that now. They're experimenting. They're going to innovate. It's going to get better. I think CRISPR is already in its second form, and they're probably going to continue to innovate that and get it more and more uh, efficient. They've already done it in China, where they've used human embryos, and they've manipulated these human embryos. So it's become a, a giant issue globally in terms of ethics and whether or not that's okay to do. Like, once people start doing it, though, and they engineer a race of super people, then, is is that what the implication is? This yeah. is about creating super people. Well, right now it's not. Right now it's about stopping diseases. And I think the original, uh, I think they gave these uh, embryos a resistance to HIV. That was like the first, but. It impair. It gave them some sort of a cognitive improvement as well. It imparted that, and then there's uh, there's just like once that gets established as something that's possible to do, they're going to keep doing it, and they're going to get way better at it. You know, and also it's a competitive world. Like if there is a a, a means by which one nation could create people, I'm presuming with higher IQs and a billion Nicky Rods. How about that? Yeah. Storming the gates. Yeah. But they can all read minds. <laughs> Jump over buildings. I mean, what mm. it means to be a human is going to be very yes. different 100 years from now. You said that, uh, Neil said that people can talk without words. That's what Elon said. Sorry. Elon said that you're going to be able to talk without words. And obviously, since this is his invention, I don't think he's blowing smoke. Yeah. Now, um, how does that apply? Does that mean you can put a chip in it and get people talking multiple languages and... I think what he's saying is you're going to be able to talk wirelessly through some new method. Now, what, whatever this new method is, whether it's based on icons, like Jamie had an idea so that- So it's, it's the transmission of words, not yes. the- Yes. Okay, okay. The Definitely. transmission of thought. Okay. Like instead of, or, or maybe it has, is actual words that you can hear. I mean, maybe it'll be like us having this conversation- We'll be going back and forth the way we're doing now, but we'll be doing it entirely in silence. But you and I will be able to hear it. Or maybe somebody could hack into it. But maybe even a, another step forward would be a much more complex, um, maybe a hieroglyphic style language of images that will be universal. So instead of one person speaking Polynesian and another person speaking British or, or, or German, rather, you'll have one universal yep. global language that we'll be able to you know, all use together, which would be really bizarre. Mm. It's I mean, happened before. In the, sure. Yeah, in the old days, uh, Latin was the universal language for European countries. Maybe yeah. You could go anywhere in the world speaking, at least in the European world, speaking Latin and, uh, and, and get along with people who uh, were from the more educated classes. Well, there's been speculation about the possibility of developing a universal language in the past. It's just course, never yeah. really 
applied in modern times. Some but, of them were actually pretty good. There was Esperanto was a universal right. language, and um, so uh, there are definitely precedents for it. Um, man, that's, that's absolutely wild shit, right? Yeah, I mean, th- these are things that are going to massively change the yeah. direction of, of humanity. But again, one of the unique things about people is the fact that you work with whatever whatever hand you were dealt. You work with all these attributes and all of these deficits and pros, and you try to figure out how to do your best with what you've got, you know? And it's it's kind of what's cool about seeing like a, a little tiny guy like Marcelo Garcia who figures out a style versus a long guy like Hodger Gracie who figures out a different style. And in MMA, it's it's really interesting, right? It's just so, because you have even more variables when you add in striking. Yeah, yeah. And just with styles of people that just in life some people get by with a great sense of humor other people get by with an insane work ethic and drive and it's weird to see all these different kinds of human beings try to figure their way through life it's entertaining to me it's one of the the more interesting things about being a person is that we vary so much yes so i'm i don't know if it's good to all become the same thing but I have a feeling that's what's going to happen. Um, as a general rule, once a disruptive technology gets released, there's no pulling it back. Yeah. It's Pandora's box. Unless we get hit with an asteroid. That's true. That can, <laughs> that can end it all very quickly. Yeah. 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 Um, amazing. Interesting times. Yes. Well, we just did this for three and a half hours, believe it or not. My Crazy. God. We better stop Time there. flies. Yes. Time flies. Um, so uh, who's number one is this Friday. Uh, it streams live on Flow Grappling. I'll be there live, too. I can't wait to watch. I, I really enjoy it. It's one of my favorite things about Austin now is that once a month they have uh, elite-level grappling. That's awesome. Craig Jones will be in the finals. And who's his opponent again? Um, Craig's taking on Luis Panza, who's a, uh, interestingly a, a great leg lock specialist himself, a different form of leg lock attack. He mostly focuses on Achilles locks. Um, he's kind of, as it were, like uh, old school leg locking versus new school. Like this is, that's an oversimplification, but there's some validity to it. Um, both of them have a very strong positional game. I think this is a, a great chance for uh, both athletes to um, come out in, in different kinds of ways. Luis Panza can say, hey, listen, like uh, old school leg locks have validity too. And Craig has a chance to either work with his uh, uh, approach to leg locking, or he could go a completely different route and play a positional game. Craig has a very underestimated positional game. He's got great back attack, very, very impressive guard passing skills, and he's getting better at takedowns every day. So um, this could be, this match could go in directions that people don't anticipate. And it's a full card too. There's a bunch of really elite yeah. grapplers on the card. Yeah. Really entertaining it's to very, watch. Yeah, these guys are doing a great job putting on stacked, uh, stacked cards. Yep, I agree. I agree. All right. Um, always a pleasure. Thank, Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye, everybody.